minimize distractions. And to make the most of this event, we highly encourage you to utilize the conference app. It grants you access to the conference functions, keeping you updated with the latest updates and announcements. Don't forget to join the conversation and share your experiences at this session or the conference by using the hashtag SNEB2023 on social media. Our, we will be available to address any questions you may have after the presentation. And now without further ado, we're gonna invite Courtney to come up to introduce the session. Hi everyone, really lovely to have you all here today. Um, so we thought we'd quickly run through what the learning goals of the Learning Lab here today are. Um, so the first one is to critically review various definitions and conceptualizations of food literacy to develop an understanding of the evidence of the relationship between food literacy and food-related outcomes and also understanding of the measurement of food literacy, to collaboratively describe goals for action in food literacy, to increase everyone's comfort level in applying aspects of food literacy in educational settings, and to identify food literacy domains and competencies. And so the training objectives are to apply food literacy domains and competencies to a traditional school and multidisciplinary curricula or lesson and contribute to an international discussion on the definition and measurement of food literacy. So we've got the workshop agenda up here, so talk through the activities that we'll be doing today. So Helen will be talking a little bit first, um, just about transitioning from practical to theoretical. And then Erin will be presenting on cultivating youth food citizens, bringing food literacy into the classroom. Then we'll have a 45 minute sort of lunch break. And then Helen and I will be talking through food literacy theoretical frameworks and definitions. And then we'll have the closing of the session then. So this is just all of us who'll be talking here today. Um, so I just wanted to pop up first and introduce myself. So I'm Dr. Courtney Thompson. I'm a lecturer at University of Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. So traveled all the way out here and I'm loving DC so far. Um, and so Erin will introduce herself a little bit later and I'll pass over now to Helen to introduce herself and start off the session. Are you able to bring Helen up? Awesome. <laughs> Hi everyone. Um, Thanks very much for joining. I was intending, uh, my name's um, Associate Professor Helen Bidgen, so I was um, intending to be in Washington, but had um, my mum had, my mother hadn't been well, so um, I wasn't able to travel, but was super keen to still participate in this workshop. So it's, I'm speaking to you from Australia, um, where it's very late at night, um, but really um, keen to, to participate. So how this, workshop came about is um, Courtney and I had been doing some research together in food literacy and we consistently came up with um, the fact that there isn't a really consistent internationally recognised definition is a bit of a barrier to things moving forward and the field moving forward so we submitted a short workshop to the conference for that and Erin, um, on the other side of the world, was looking at um, looking at applying food literacy in primary schools and put in a submission for a workshop. And Yenery got the two of us together um, virtually in February and said, look, you seem to be looking at um, two sides of the same um, coin. Do you think you could combine your workshops? And so we've been meeting really regularly since then and enjoying getting to know each other. And we've 
flipped and flopped a little bit about whether to do the theoretical first and then the practical um or the practical first and then the theoretical so we hope we've got a bit of a blend of that and we hope that we can um there's common threads throughout both components of the workshop and as as courtney's out, outlined the the objectives that we hope that you go away with is a common understanding of food literacy for Courtney and I, we'd like to really take that forward um, to progress that internationally. We've got some work in a few months time um, with the, the World um, Food Forum that we're hoping to bring some of these learnings from. Um, and, um, and then with Erin looking at its application so that you've got something really practical to take away with you with your future work. So um, I thought I was going to, introduce how I came to be working in this area. Um, I don't know if that slides up now, Courtney. I can't I can't I can see the room but I can't see the slides. Um, so is next one up just of so that so I came um, into doing work in food literacy. I was working yeah I can great I can see that now. Um, I was working as a senior public health nutritionist in our state um, Department of Health and we were looking at reviewing our um, pub state's first public health nutrition plan which was um, called Eat Well Queensland. It was at a midpoint review and our stakeholders said we needed to be doing more in the field of food literacy and at that time the term hadn't that term didn't exist when we wrote the document and so it was new and I, I had a background in home economics um, in addition to um, being a dietitian and so my boss said to me Helen go out and find some interventions and I said oh, I don't know that um, we really know very much about what people mean by food literacy and I, and I set off to do my PhD the context of that and so the pictures that are there are the public health nutrition team that I was in, uh, the Eat Well Queensland. The state was about to invest in the Jamie Oliver Ministry of Food, um, which was happening in our, in our state health department. We also had a school kitchen garden program that was happening. Uh, the woman in the apron was our state Premier, which is like your governors in the US who'd just gone on our celebrity master chef so she had a real interest in food and cooking. The gentleman in the corner um, was our, our state health minister and he'd recently separated from his wife and had all these interests in um, getting more food literate and was concerned that there weren't universal programs in place to be able to do that and internationally we had Michelle Obama in the White House converting to a kitchen garden there and then at the UN level healthy sustainable diets and thinking about the new nutrition science was emerging as well. So that was a context in which this work began which was in, in 2010. So Courtney could you put the next slide up? Thanks. So for me in the, de in the Department of Health at the time Coming up with a, with some interventions that the state could invest in, there there was there wasn't a, an agreed understanding of the term. Um, and from my perspective, we didn't even know what behaviours we were trying to encourage. You know, some people thought it should be food miles. Some people thought that it should be being able to grow your own food. Everybody had a different point of view, and it largely came from their own experiences of why they thought um, they were good with food. 
We didn't know if there was a relationship between these things in dietary intake, because even if we could agree that food literacy meant cooking plus something else, really even the literature on cooking and its relationship to dietary intake is really unclear. So we wanted to kind of, it was unusual to kind of say we're going to invest in an area to improve health when they, we didn't have any clear evidence on its relationship to health and we didn't have any clarity on what it actually was that we were investing in. And then logically, um, we knew I knew that we needed to account for how people make food decisions and what knowledge, skills and behaviours they need to make those decisions when they're choosing foods that's prepared outside the home. And, you know, we know that even at, if at best people were cooking frequently, it would only be some meals um, out of a lot of the eating occasions that people have. Um, so really we needed to kind of come up with some sort of uh, definition or conceptualisation that encompassed those things as well. So next slide. Thanks, Courtney. Um, so then I kind of began um, my work in the area. So my thesis um, defined food literacy and modelled its relationship to food intake and that thesis and the papers from it were published in 2014. In 2016, I was invited to um, write a book, which was um, exciting because it brought together um, people that I'd met along the way around the world um, that were looking at and I decided to keep the focus on health and education. At that time too, the Italian um, government, the Italian Dietitians Association were looking at the development of a measure. And the following year, um, the, some researchers in the Netherlands also were doing the same thing. So we brought those people together to try to look at, oh, we thought, oh great, we'll come up with this European measure through the European Dietitians Association and progress from there. But we really saw that the components were quite different. At the, in that same year, the UN, um, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization Nutrition Education Division decided to use um, food literacy as part of the conceptualization of what we were aiming for, for nutrition education in schools. Canada started work on a measure shortly after that. There was a uh, measure to measure developed in in Canada, um, and so we decided to get a little bit more serious about this. Um, Courtney, can you just um, put the next slide up? And that's when I got to know Courtney better. She um, undertook her PhD with me, and Courtney will talk you through the various studies that she did on the development of a measure um, and the various um, validity that she that validation steps that she took for that. But what was really interesting in the development of all of that was really unpicking even more, okay, we've got this conceptual idea of what food literacy includes, but when you come to work out, well, what are the questions that I'm picking to measure that, it focuses you even more on what do I really mean by this term and how do I think it relates to food intake. So that's been my quest. That's been what I've been really interested in and what's motivated me. But what we um, hoped, um, if we pop the next slide up, is um, that if you can share with us um, what's brought you here um, and what's your interest in the field, what's your background, where do you work, and, um, and that'll help us tailor a little bit more um, what, what we can... Um, what, what, how we can get the most out of this workshop for all of us.
So I think um, Courtney can probably talk you through a little bit how to use that, the Mentimeter. Can we bring up the um, website up on the screen, please? The website? I've got it up on the screen at the moment, the Mentimeter. So have you guys used Menti before and do you have internet access is probably the next thing. <laughs> um, so it's menti.com. Um, and then the code is 21225073. I'm just about to bring it up on the screen, so hopefully you'll be able to pop it in there. Um, yes, yeah, so that's information at the top to join and using that code. And yeah, we'd love for you to tell us um, who you are and if you're in education, if you could maybe specify what level of education. So are you primary school, high school, university? Thanks so much for the responses so far. So we've got Snappy D, we've got a university, state extension specialist in food and health, community health, local health department. Undergraduate health sciences at a university, public health, WIC, community health, university health educator. Snappy D extension, youth to K-12. Taking a PhD. Great. USDA Food and Nutrition Service. That's great. Thanks so much for all the responses, everyone. Has everyone had a chance to respond? Are you right if I move on to the next question? Yep. All right, so our next question then was what purpose do you need food literacy to serve? So we've got food literacy for diet-related disease prevention, um, for citizenship, for food traditions, climate change, food waste, food security. If you wanted to just pop a vote on that one. And if there's some other um, purpose that you need food literacy for, if you wanted to just raise your hand, maybe call it out um, if, if it's not up here. Great, so we've got predominantly diet-related disease prevention, to a lesser extent, food security and food waste. Great. And just to confirm, did anyone have any other reasons why they're interested in food literacy that weren't maybe included in the poll? Great, perfect.
can we swap that around? Sorry. <laughs> we'll master this soon. <laughs> Perfect, thanks so much. Cool, and Helen, you were talking to this? Yeah, yeah, so um, I've used this definition of food quite a lot. And so I guess when I was just sort of breaking down food literacy, and we'll get to various definitions of food literacy um, all combined, but, um, I really like this definition of food. It was done ahead of the Decade of Action on Nutrition, um, the UN Decade of Action on Nutrition, which I guess we're coming towards the end of now by the civil society organisations. Um, so it says that food is the expression of values, cultures, social relations and people's self-determination and that the act of feeding oneself and others embodies our sovereignty, ownership and empowerment. When nourishing oneself and eating with one's family, friends and communities, we reaffirm our cultural identities, our ownership over our life course and our human dignity. Nutrition is foundational for personal development and essential for overall well-being. So I've put that there just so that um, I guess we're thinking about food in that really holistic way that obviously even from those results, I like this definition because uh, it, it sees nutrition as foundational for enabling all those other um, roles that food has, but that food's got those multiple um, dimensions and roles. And then the next slide just has a very basic definition of literacy from UNESCO, but that it's the ability to identify, understand, interpret, create, communicate and compute using printed and written materials associated with varying contexts. Literacy involves a continuum of learning and enabling individuals to achieve their goals, to develop their knowledge and potential and to participate fully in their community and wider society. Generally, literacy also encompasses numeracy, blah, blah, blah. So it wasn't so much to talk about the written, this is obviously a definition for written literacy, language literacy, but it was that concept that literacies and why we use, why that term is used to find for financial literacy, health literacy, a whole lot of different sorts of literacies, is that concept of enabling and um, people to not have barriers to achieve what they want to achieve. Uh, so with those kind of two thoughts in mind, um, we thought we would just start the workshop off. We'll move on to Erin's section and then we'll come back in that second half to really talk about um, some some concepts of what we mean and pulling those apart a bit and working all together to come up with what we mean. Thank you. Thanks, Helen. So we are going to move on. Um, let's see here. All right. So 
Thank you all for coming. I hope that gave you a nice overview as to why we're here and why we decided to kind of go in order. Um, usually, we've had a lot of discussions about this. Usually, we do theory to practice, right? Um, so today, we're going to flip that, and we're going to talk a little bit about food literacy in practice to kind of give you an idea of all the different areas that food literacy touches upon so that when Courtney and Helen come back up, you have a little bit more diversity in your understanding, um, perhaps because you are um, widening your view and definition of food literacy based on um, my portion this morning. So my name is Erin Kamalo. Um, I am the Program Development Administrator for the New Jersey Healthy Kids Initiative. Um, I am formerly a classroom teacher. I spent most of my teaching career um, in first grade. I left the classroom after about 12 years when I uh, received my doctorate in education from Rutgers University, um, which is where the New Jersey Healthy Kids Initiative is housed at. Um, parallel to my journey in my career in academics and education, I had also been a late to life um, health and fitness person. Um, I was the kid in gym class that um, during the game of dodgeball, I'd be like hiding behind the mats because no one had ever taught me how to throw, catch, or dodge. Um, I really, ironically enough, my mom was a home ec teacher. I had no interest in cooking, no interest in healthy foods. I also was the kid who would be swapping my like healthy cookies at lunch for the Oreos from the kid next door to me. Um, but Later in life, I somehow ended up taking a introductory CrossFit class. And long story short, I actually fell in love with fitness and nutrition um, in my adult years. I went on to become a trainer. I've been coaching now for 10 years. And it really made me passionate about the way that we um, treat our bodies and what we are consuming and staying active. And I noticed such a difference in my own physical health, but mental health as well. Um, and so when I was ready to leave the classroom and I saw the opportunity to be working with schools, families, in improving their kids' um, health and lifestyles early on um, to kind of avoid my late-in-life discovery, uh, I was really excited to take that opportunity. And coincidentally enough, my co-teacher and I, when I was in first grade, had worked a lot on curriculum development primarily around food, because like Helen said, food is so universal. Um, so really it was bringing all of my passions together. Um, and so I'm gonna share a little bit about that overlap in careers with you today to kind of help you um, develop an idea of how to create a really comprehensive curriculum that not only suits your needs for things like disease prevention, um, food security, but also will fulfill the needs of a lot of the schools and organizations that you're working with to create better buy-in. So I probably don't need to tell you why food literacy education is important because you're already here in the room. Um, however, some of the things that um, you know, are impacted by food literacy are our health, the environment, and really our economy. Um, it addresses nutrition knowledge, culinary literacy, and most important for you folks in the room, behavior change. Um, if you've read, oops, if you've seen the research, you probably know that greater food literacy has been linked with improved nutritional intake and health outcomes. Um, so we find that when 
when um, kids learn how to cook, it makes them fill their plates differently, it encourages their families to shop differently, um, and they consider the environment differently. So all things that will lead to greater um, environmental sustainability, but also um, our own health. So inherent in food literacy is the understanding of food systems. Um, like Helen said, everybody eats, so we're all involved in the food system. Um, and this food system involves everything from growing, harvesting, all the way to even disposing of our food. Um, when I think about food literacy and I think about education and food systems, um, the main topic that I feel like really encompasses all of it is this concept of food justice. Um, and I really like this, this visual here. Um, this comes from the food challenge uh, that a lot of like universities take place in and it really intersects the idea of food literacy and global citizenship education. Um, it's more so a social movement than it is health, but it's considering all of the different layers, um, the people, the communities, um, and then also brings in these complex social determinants of health such as race, ethnicity, class, gender, um, that affects all of these things and um, integrates public health and nutrition. Um, it really links these food system processes to topics such as inequality, climate change, and health issues, all of which are really relevant topics for today's education, not only in K-12, but in general in all of the spheres that you're working in. So like I said, food is a great entry point to teach in any age group and any atmosphere um, because it's, we all have a story, we all have an experience, we all have an emotional connection to food. Um, and this is why I really feel strongly that food literacy can be integrated into any K-12 um, and undergraduate curriculum, um, but really it needs to be. And it really offers an opportunity for multidisciplinary instruction. It addresses learning standards, 21st century skills, um, and it really encourages children to become active citizens and advocates. Um, so this theme that we're here for this conference, you know, engaged citizens, we want our students, whether they're preschoolers, whether they're college age, whether they're adults, to really become active citizens, um, thinking about how to make their schools, homes, communities, and overall our planet ha healthier, happier places to live. Um, I particularly, obviously, am biased towards school settings because that is where my career started. Um, but I also think that schools are a wonderful opportunity to access children of all backgrounds um, and can promote positive behaviors at a young age. So if we're looking at that lifetime trajectory of behavior change, earlier intervention makes such a difference. Um, and I will share some anecdotes as we go through the presentation about how even at age six, um, kids can really be reframing and rethinking some of the choices that they're making, which heavily um, influences what their family is doing as well. So today I'm gonna kind of walk you through a curriculum design process um, and how to apply these food literacy topics. It's gonna be pretty workshoppy, so you'll see on your tables, um, you have little packets. Uh, these also are found in the app, but I, as a conference attendee, I am, 
still, I, I love a paper pen activity and taking notes, so there are some paper copies there for you. Um, I've also provided, I believe in the app, a link and on the resources, a Google Docs that you can copy into your own Google Drive so that if you want to use this curriculum template, you can use it for your own use on the computer. Um, one tip I would use, especially for all of you who collaborate with schools, um, I'll even say this as my experience in my role now and as a teacher, um, go grassroots. I've found that school systems, particularly the bigger public school systems, are so impossible to get in, especially post-COVID, where they are so overwhelmed with initiatives, um, trying to get kids back from that academic slide, that oftentimes topics like this or any new initiatives in general are kind of pushed to the side or like, yeah, 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 I'll get back to you. Find a champion in the school most likely it's going to be the school health phys ed or school nurse, um, even science or social studies teachers. Find that one teacher who like agrees with you and it's so much easier if you go in through the bottom, they'll advocate to their department heads and supervisors who will then bring it to the admins, who will then bring it to the superintendents and boards. Um, we've found that to be the most successful way um, because if the administration and board knows that the teachers are on board with this, um, they're so much easier to approve and let them into the schools. So that's just like my little pro tip, um, because I do know getting into schools can be a real challenge. So we're going to start today by kind of looking at how to plan and design. Um, and I'm going to be talking about specific design for curriculum, but I love this comic. Um, I taught Stripe how to whistle. I don't hear him whistling. And the character goes, I said I taught him. I didn't say he learned it. Um, so one of the problems that I often see with nutrition education, and also the research says, is that it's very didactic. Oftentimes it's someone like a sage on the stage telling you to drink your orange juice because it has vitamin C, that's good for you, or milk gives you strong bones. Um, but what research tells us, learning occurs best when it's experiential, student-driven, and there's some sort of buy-in. Um, particularly if you're working with younger kids, I'm sure you've experienced the more you tell them that something is healthy, the more resistant they're going to be to eat it. Um, so this approach to curriculum design is kind of a backdoor approach where we're gonna really think about outcomes first and then think about strategic ways that we can get to those outcomes. Um, has anyone here ever heard, show, just show of hands, your experience with curriculum design in general? Okay, a few people. Um, have any of you heard of understanding by design? No? Awesome, good. All right, so understanding by design is going to be the curriculum framework that we're gonna be looking at today. Um, it is, it was created and researched by educational researchers and writers, Grant Wiggins and Jay McTie. Um, and unlike a traditional approach to curriculum, where first teachers plan the activities, which is typically what we do, um, then develop assessments to see if the kids have learned the activities, um, learned from them, we require this 
particular framework requires educators to consider the learning goals first. Um, so oftentimes when we go to do presentations for adults, this is kind of the framework that we use. Yet when it comes to learners in their environments, we often flip it and think about the activities first. Um, so we're gonna be focusing on learning goals that reflect knowledge and skills that we want our uh, learners to learn. Then we create the activities and assessments um, that are designed and driven by those outcomes. Um, very much like a grant proposal also, right? That is usually how we, we write grant proposals. Um, so today we're gonna walk through this, um, and this is just kind of a nice little visual of the stages of development, um, and you can follow along. We're gonna take some breaks and opportunities for you to work on those packets together. All right, so the first step in this approach to curriculum design is to identify the desired results. So a lot of you had uh, preventing chronic disease as your big idea, right? So we're thinking about these content standards if you're working in a school system, really important that you integrate those content standards. Um, that will give schools buy-in because they won't feel like they're adding in something additional. They will feel like I'm already accomplishing what I'm supposed to be doing with my time. And so it's kind of like killing two birds with one stone. Um, so, or maybe your program like SNAP-Ed has a specific mission-related goal like preventing chronic disease. Um, and then we also wanna think about what habits of mind and cross-disciplinary goals uh, we want to address. So basically it's like, our desired results are what is the point? Um, what is the bigger purpose? Uh, what will this enable us to accomplish? It's really the big, big ideas. Um, so in some cases, I'm gonna just grab this. If you flip to in your packets, I've included some samples. So here, first of all, this page actually has um, our standards for developing a curriculum. So these might be standards that I would be using today. Um, and then if you flip through, I've also included some standards from science. So we have some of the national goals for science. And then also on the next page, I have included some from um, phys ed and health and also economics. So you can see already we can pull from different disciplines, and this is why it's great that you could, believe it or not, link up with a social studies teacher, for example, or an economics teacher to implement a food literacy curriculum, because some of these big ideas are cross-disciplinary. Um, so this is just an example up on the screen of our first grade curriculum. Um, we were focusing our curriculum on cocoa production. Um, like I said, I wasn't really in the nutrition field yet when I was teaching first grade, but we did want to do a food that was universal and would link to a lot of different global citizenship concepts. Um, and so within this, we were able to not only teach about food systems, but we were able to also dispel a lot of myths um, that children develop even at the early age of six. Um, and also foster an, uh, an attitude of open-mindedness and appreciation for different cultures, um, different lifestyles, different types of professions across the food systems. Um, and like I said, 
even at age of six, we are able to really see some of those deep understandings. Um, so here are some examples of conceptual frameworks you could pull from. Um, as a teacher, we really focused on global citizenship education and um, the sustainable development goals. So obviously this conference is very um, focused on the sustainable development goals. A lot of education right now is. And so those would be great, that would be a great area to pull um, when you are developing those big ideas. So I've also put like the definitions of each down there and then where they overlap. And honestly, that would be something that you could essentially copy and paste right into those in big ideas enduring um, understandings, right? So I also included there, which is in your packet, some of those standards. So again, it's kind of like your guiding light. Just like when you are writing a grant proposal, what is the purpose of your proposal? That purpose is your guiding light, and everything that comes after it, you want to make sure it links back to there. Um, when we are thinking about learning standards, we really want to be thinking about what our students are expected to know and be able to do. So you can see here, it, these are really about like attitudes, but then when you look at the standards, these are more skill-based. So you're thinking big picture, but thinking big macro and micro. Um, so these are just examples of standards. Um, this is for the high school age. Um, and then here are some examples that I've just pulled from various um, sources. So some of these are from, for example, a, a Rutgers University undergraduate course for agriculture and food systems. So again, this can really span all the way through higher ed. Um, we have lots of different versions. I have also K through 12, New Jersey student learning. I have UNESCO. So you can have a combination. You can have just one big idea. Um, but also today I'm going to show you how it's reflected in our workshop. So today my goal was to explain and demonstrate how to integrate food literacy education into your different classrooms. Um, so I want you to take a moment. Uh, you can use the resources in here. You can use any of the resources on the back. Maybe you already have something, like SnapEd has your website or your curriculum that you're using. Um, I'd like you to either work on your own or with your group to think of one, or, one to three established goals you would want your learners to walk away with if you were to implement a food literacy unit or curriculum. Um, and when you've done that, you can just jot them in this section. Uh, we'll take about five minutes for that, and then we'll take some volunteers to share.
So again, we're thinking about what would you want your learners to leave with? What is the point of teaching what you're teaching? Why does it matter? Um, and what will this enable us to accomplish? And I typically use the science standards, but again, the health and phys ed is also a good resource. We'll just take another minute or so, and then we'll hear from some volunteers. Great. Do we have any volunteers who'd like to share what their big idea or enduring understanding would be for their particular curriculum? And it would be helpful if you gave us a context as to where, who you are and where you would be applying this to. You can just shout it out. Amazing, that's perfect, right? So that idea of improving and increasing self-efficacy um, because the big idea is to be able to empower them to be able to use these skills independently to lead, lead these healthy lifestyles um, for aging populations. Anyone else, a different context or a different big idea? No, all right, we'll move on. So the next step after you have that big idea or that lofty goal um, is to really identify the long-term accomplishments and trans transferable skills. These are like the tangibles. These are um, things that we actually want them to be able to have and to be able to do. Um, so for me, as a classroom teacher, some of those would include, you know, make choices that can make their homes, schools, and communities a better place. Um, collect information and present findings. Some of these things would be tangible, like learn safe knife skills, for example. Um, so you can see here an example from a classroom. Um, but then also we can look into food literacy. So this is a really great uh, visual uh, taken from a more recent research article. So food literacy comp competencies, a conceptual framework for youth 
for uh, transitioning into adulthood. So I could pull some of these competencies. Um, I know it's really hard to see, but for example, we have understanding food safety risks associated with food storage and preparation. That might be something that, you know, an aging population, that would be a skill I would want my learners to come away with. Um, curriculum to suit your needs. Um, so the second idea is um, constructing these understandings. How are we going to transfer um, the, their learning to do something? Um, so today's transfer is to apply the understanding by design framework to food literacy concepts, right? It's taking what you've learned and then applying it. How am I going to transfer it? We want skills to be transferable. As educators, if we're teaching something that is niche, like my example earlier of drink milk because it's good for your bones, really only suits one small niche purpose, right? However, it's like that concept like teach a man to fish. If I can teach my students how to make low ingredient, low equipment, low cost smoothies that include a calcium source, I don't really have to worry that they know that it's good for their bones because I've just taught them how to make something tasty and delicious that they're going to make on their own and I know that they're likely going to be getting their calcium, right? So here are some examples to, um, of different ways you and different variety and diversity in ways that you can have your students transfer their knowledge to application. So these are the long-term accomplishments and transferable skills. Um, so again, I'm going to have you, I'm going to flip back. This one was, I thought, really helpful. Hard to see it also. So if you want to come up and take a peek, um, go ahead again on your own or with someone at your table, jot down one to three different um, transfer concepts, those long-term transfer goals that you may want your learners to take away. How will they use their learning and what will they use it to do independently? <laughs> I did also, I believe, at the bottom of your resource page under miscellaneous, there is a link there if you do have service or Wi-Fi, you can pull it up on a device. Um, oh, perhaps I can. Oh. Okay, here we go. I'll put this for now and then I'll eventually slide over to another section. <laughs> The slides, I believe, should be on the app, available on the app, I think. Yes.
great. Would anyone like to share one of their objectives for tr learning transfer? Also kind of giving context to your role and where you'd be using it. Anyone pull one from up here? No? All right. <laughs> we'll move on then. Okay. So similarly, we're still within this identifying desired results frame. We're still kind of thinking about what our end goal is for our learners. And so next we move to constructing understandings through meaning. Um, so this is similar to our established goals or our big ideas, um, but these are kind of narrowing it down. So what important ideas and processes do you want your students to understand? Um, these are things like um, essential questions. So those of you who've worked with curriculum before or K-12 um, are probably familiar with this concept, but these are these like philosophical questions. So for example here, um, I had what effect does the economy have on our society, the environment? Um, you could frame that, you know, what effect do food systems have on our economy, the environment, our health, right? Um, so again, some conceptual frameworks that you may be considering using are those sustainable development goals, food justice, food systems, um, and again, kind of coming up with those themes. Uh, so some other examples um, in framing what this means is what do we want our students to know? So not necessarily that transfer and being able to do, but um, the insights that they're gonna walk away with. So those attitudes, uh, dispositions, um, so for example, you might want your learners to walk away with the idea that cooking does not have to be for culinary artists, or eating healthy is, can be affordable, um, because there are a lot of myths. So this is a great area where you might dispel some myths. Um, and then tying it back to the big ideas, like what do you want your learners to connect? Um, maybe they're connecting that what they consume or what they purchase impacts the economy and environment, right? So um, really making all those big connections. And I love this visual. So these are the six facets of understanding. Um, and so these are the different ways that we would want our students to understand. So maybe again, perspective, thinking about their role versus someone else's role and their impact. Um, interpretation. So creating something, maybe they're going to create their own recipe based on their cultural flavors and repertoire or what's available to them. Um, explanation, their ability to define or to uh, describe something that you've taught to them. Application, that's one of the things that we're doing today, right? Applying a concept to a real life example. Um, empathy. So I love this one, I think it's so important, but I know for a lot of our students um, at the college age, like empathy for the people in the food system, who's preparing your food, who harvested your food, um, what are their lifestyles like, what are the challenges that they face, 
Um, and likely that's going to make you consume your food a little bit differently. Um, and then self-knowledge, so reflecting on your own choices. How are you participating in the food system? What are your choices leading towards? Um, so these are some examples of the meaning that you might use. So again, just some examples of some of those understandings you might include. And then the essential questions. Um, so on this graphic, you can see these are the different characteristics of essential questions. Um, so they're the big questions, the philosophical questions. Uh, they usually don't have a wrong or right answer. They're things that you ponder. Um, they provoke discussion. They spark meaningful connection between some of the topics and um, really naturally create opportunities for those uh, skill acquisition and transfer. So it's really getting your kids or learners to think big. Um, and so some examples like where does our food come from and why does it matter? How is food connected to health, society, the environment, and me? And for today's purposes, these were some of the essential questions that I was considering in designing this presentation. So go ahead, take a couple minutes. We're going to jot down one to three meaning understandings and then one to three essential questions um, that would align with your big idea. And again, there are lots of resources on your resource page. Um, for example, the, the goals for sustainable development. I, we thought they were going to be on the app because we sent them the link, but yes. to know. Yeah, thank you. Good to know for the future. <laughs> All right, and maybe instead of sharing with the whole group, maybe you can turn and talk to someone at your table and share one of those meanings or essential questions.
right. So continuing on, and if you're using your little paper packet template, you can turn um, the transfer and meaning, the enduring understandings, and essential questions are actually on the second page. And we're going to be filling in this bottom part now. Um, so this is like the very nitty gritty. So knowledge, what should they know? And these should have correct answers. So these are things, key items like definitions, vocabulary. Um, like if I'm teaching knife skills, I probably want them to know like the bear claw method is something I would want them. I would want them to know the difference between a liquid measuring cup and a dry measuring cup. Um, I would, for other conceptual like agriculture, maybe what is the actual definition? What makes something organic? Uh, things like that. So these are critical details, important people, events, timelines. Um, things like that. And then the skills are the things that you want them to be able to do. Um, so the skills that you want them to acquire, um, so things like g even general research skills, study skills, interpersonal skills. Um, so you can see here some examples from a K-12 classroom would be uh, different, using different sources of information and um, using a range of tools and sources listening and communicating accurately and clearly. So again, you can see how even if you're doing a more science-based or economics-based or culinary arts-based, these skills can overlap. In fact, a lot of those skills that you're seeing there have almost direct parallels to English language arts standards in most states. So again, you can really create um, some buy-in with school partners by demonstrating how you're accomplishing the same goals, even though it might not seem as obvious. So here are some examples again. Um, these are some vocabulary words that in our sphere we might be wanting our learners to walk away with. Um, and then these are some skills, so um, practical garden management. Um, and then using literature, so maybe if you're teaching in higher ed, using literature to analyze the structural context of food systems. So wide range here, um, depending on your learners and your context. So you can go ahead and jot down a couple of pieces of knowledge and the skills you would want your learners to walk away with. Again, these are very granular. And then I think before we head into assessing, why don't we do a five minute break here? Um, you can get up, stretch, get coffee, water, bathrooms, um, and then we'll come back and talk about, kind of reflect on what you have on your, your templates and kind of do a little assessment of that. So it is 1036, we'll aim for, uh, 1037, we'll aim for 1042-ish. <laughs> 1045 is easier to mark, all right? So go ahead, stretch your legs, use the bathroom, grab a snack, and we'll be back here. We'll start again at 1045. Sort it out before you twist it out. Sick and tired of messing around. Light up. Me. Money ain't no good 
We are going to continue our workshop by talking about assessment next. Um, so those of you who've done grant proposals or designed a workshop, um, oftentimes we're thinking about how do I know my learners learned what I taught, um, thinking back to that first comic. Um, so there are a number of different ways uh, that we can assess learners. So some are going to be more formative, some more summative. Um, but once we know what we want our students to learn, we have to think about how we'll know if they've learned it. So um, I like calling it evidence more so than assessment. Um, obviously, when we think of assessment, most of us think of the traditional sense of like quizzes and papers and essays, um, but really learning should be generative. And what I mean by that is that learning should create something. Something should be created as a result of what your learners are understanding. So like for example today, hopefully you're creating a skeleton um, or an outline of a future curriculum that you might be able to flesh out and use in your learning contexts. Um, so Determining the acceptable evidence asks, how do we know we've met the goal? Um, how do we know our learners got the understandings? And how do we know that the essential questions have been considered? Um, so some criteria you can see up here. Um, we can have students do something in a real world situation. Uh, you can have students participate in something that requires them to use judgment, innovation. Um, you could have some sort of like contest or like a, a fair of some sort. Um, but really what you want your learners to do is to replicate a real life situation so that you can really see that they can apply the concepts that you've taught to whatever um, performance-based assessment that you are, are doing. Um, it also allows for opportunities to rehearse practice. So again, like recipe creation um, is a really great opportunity where it's not like a, you either got it or you don't. There can be opportunities like, oh yeah, I forgot my bear claw I was cutting, let me fix that. Um, things like that. Um, on the right side, you can see these are probably verbs and categories that you may be familiar with. They're Bloom's taxonomy of understanding. So you can see that creation is really like, that is our highest goal. That is the deepest level of understanding. Knowledge is great. Um, I think that's what most of us growing up in school, that's what most of our learning focused on is can you replicate, can you, spit out facts, can you define things? But what we really want for these empowered, engaged citizens is that like four and up, um, actually even three and up, right? We want them to apply their learning. We want them to be able to analyze things with a critical eye. We want them to be able to um, evaluate, to be able to reframe or criticize or judge something um, with their own opinions based on what they've learned. And then again, like I said, most significantly, we want them to create. So I love these verbs and these are really great opportunities um, to, uh, or verbs that you can use while thinking about your assessments. Um, and then we also wanna be thinking about what am I going to do to make sure that the student will do well on the assessments, right? We want them to learn. We want them to be able to take it away and succeed. Um, and then also consider how likely is that our learners might do poorly. And if we think 
about the types of assessments that we're doing and we think they're going to do poorly, well then that's getting us ready to think about what learning activities might solve that. So this is an example um, from my first grade curriculum. So this was a performance task. Um, the students had to work together uh, to create kind of a timeline of food systems in the context of cocoa. Um, so you can see this first panel is from seed to pod. And then the middle is the beginning of beans. And last is turning cocoa to chocolate. Um, so not only did the students, they had to write, they used resources um, to write their own original thoughts, but they also then had to illustrate it. So it was demonstrating that, like, I'm not just spitting back information, but I can actually visually show you what that process looks like. Um, again, obviously, this is for a younger grade, for older learners, maybe they are doing a PowerPoint presentation, or um, maybe they're doing some sort of a different kind of art project where they're demonstrating. Um, maybe they're doing, like, I had um, a bunch of middle school and high schoolers do a top chef com uh, competition with smoothies, right? So some sort of way that they're demonstrating via performance um, that they have learned and can apply the concepts that you've taught. Um, here is another example. So when we were talking about uh, the cocoa process, we talked a lot about um, climate and rainforests because cocoa are shade growing trees. So we talked a lot about issues of deforestation, uh, the different climates in rainforests, the amount of work and time that goes into growing a tree and so why it is so devastating when people just clear those trees out so quickly. Um, and so they learned that we coupled with their science teacher to kind of replicate that biome. Um, some social studies here in ge geography. So learning about the different countries where cocoa is primarily grown, why it's grown there. So kind of back to that climate, back to deforestation. Um, again, some of the takeaways in geography. And then here, like application. So creating, using some of the ingredients that we talked about, um, using some of the techniques, cooking techniques we talked about. Um, and I should mention, too, that all the things that we did um, in different climates, different countries, we also mirrored back to New Jersey. So we don't want to fetishize or exoticize different areas in the country and cultures. We would say, like, this is a, an issue here, but, like, let's look at what some of the issues that are similar to, to New Jersey, um, so that they could really own those issues, know what it's like in their own backyard, to then transfer that to the macro and more global view. So we started out by looking in our own backyards, looking at development, how did suburbs become suburbs? Well, they had to clear trees, right? Um, where else is clearing trees issues around the world? Um, and then that's eventually what led us to, to ending up in Ghana. Um, for older students, uh, they can apply 21st century skills. Um, I did say older, but you can see here we had first graders prepare trifolds and they prepared little um, talks for their families. We invited all the families and school faculty and staff to come in. Um, we taught them how to take notes with bullets so that they didn't, you know, they could read off of their cards. They prepared the posters, what was the most important part of their topic that they wanted to display and share with the group. Um, and then also, um, 
ways of thinking. So this is an assessment in itself. Uh, I love this activity. It comes from a Making, Making Thinking Visible book, which is in uh, your resources. But it's all the different ways that you can really um, encourage that metacognitive. How are we thinking about our thinking? So here, this was a chalk talk activity. Um, we took big easel paper like this, put it on the different tables, one, a couple that said questions, a couple that said issues and challenges. After we had read a read aloud and watched a couple YouTube videos about different issues with deforestation um, or living in rural areas, farming communities and co-ops, um, the children without talking had to go around and they wrote down questions and added on. Um, they also added in issues and challenges that they were thinking about. So you can see some of the questions, again, coming from six-year-olds. Um, how do they get water? Uh, some of the questions were like, what if someone has a medical emergency? So again, children as young as five and six can really be considering these big questions of what does it mean to be a global citizen. They can be developing empathy um, and really reframing what they might think about the world. So here are some other examples. Um, Things that I know have been done in like a college level for like agriculture courses is to plan a budget or map out, create a garden, right? How are you going to plot it out? Where are your different vegetables going to go? There is definitely a method and technique to all of that. Um, designing a food system intervention. So maybe you have your students, you know, study a, a specific issue in food security or global food security and they have to design a food system intervention. Um, creating a food waste audit. So how can you figure out how much food waste that your school goes through in one lunch period? Or creating some sort of educational campaign to inform their other community members. Um, and then you can see here just on the side are more traditional um, forms of evidence, so tests, quizzes, observations, dialogues, definitely important, um, but I would say like our goal for LEARN is, is definitely behavior change, right? So we're leaning more towards these performance tasks. All right, so this is the part that everyone usually focuses most of their time on, which is implementing or how do I actually go about accomplishing all of these goals that I then want to later assess? So these are the learning experiences. I love that concept, like rather than saying a lesson plan, because really what we are developing is not a lesson plan, right? That's kind of like a script, and it is helpful for the educator. But really what we're designing are learning experiences. And when we frame a lesson plan um, in that context, I think it makes us think about the plan differently, right? It becomes learner-centered, it becomes experience-centered. Um, so using this as a framework, um, we can really think about how am I going to get my learners to learn and accomplish some of those goals. So you can see here, this is an example of some of the learning activities for our particular unit. 
Um, we thought about what the teacher is going to be doing, what the students are going to be doing, anything that they might be sharing. We have all of our resources and notes there. Um, and then on the other side, you'll see some pictures. So this is an example um, from a preschool. They were implementing some hydro gardens. And before we even got to the hydro gardens and showed them, um, the teacher decided to read uh, the story, Five Tough and Tiny Seeds. So they were getting introduced to different types of seeds and like the, the seed cycle. Um, after which, in that little, you see them doing some movement, they reenacted with their bodies the seed to plant process. So we got the kids moving. Um, then you see this little picture here. Each of the kids had their name on a circle and they got to vote on what seeds they thought they should plant in their hydro garden. So again, really taking student ownership. Um, they had so much more buy-in then in taking care of their garden. And then you can see once the garden started growing, um, we used those herbs and those greens in some recipes. And the kids ate the greens and the herbs. In fact, they would oftentimes ask to add them to their snacks or their lunches. Um, whereas probably if you had packed them or served them some leafy greens in their lunch without that garden, there would have been no interest. So again, creating that excitement, that buy-in, even with the voting from the get-go, um, really engages the students, um, teaches them new vocabulary, they can tell what kind of leafy greens they are, and they're also going home telling their families that like, I tried this, and it, it encourages them to bring those healthy behaviors home. So these are some different pedagogical approaches that you might use in thinking about those learning experiences. Um, we have inquiry-based learning. So those use those essential questions we talked about and that discovery. Um, so very similar to like some of the images I showed you with the greenhouse, um, some of those metacognitive activities where they're writing out their issues and questions and things are starting to unfold um, and there aren't direct answers right away. We also have problem-based learning. So that would be, for example, that um, creating a food intervention, right? So you're starting with a real-life problem and tasking students to learn about what these real-world wor problems are and then to apply their knowledge and skills to develop a solution. Um, and then project-based learning, so that's similar to that visual bean to bar. Um, you know that there is going to be a project at the end and you're going to be responsible for demonstrating uh, some sort of uh, learning that you've done and it's more long-term. Um, but you'll see all of which, these are student-centered, so you're thinking about the student primarily, not necessarily as a teacher, um, active learning and critical thinking. So they're making decisions. They are actually getting their hands on materials. They are doing their own research. Um, and they're all research-based best practices in learning. Um, so these might be some of the things that you're considering as you think about your learning. Um, let me see here. I also like thinking about um, for for older students, um, giving them the opportunity, and younger, like I showed you, to present to a real audience. So, like, not high stakes in that we want to stress our students out, but we want them to feel that their work matters, right? So, 
Um, for the college level, we've had students write a white paper and then a petition for why they think the dorms should have share tables for um, shelf-stable products. You know, um, my last course, last semester, they said, you know, I always end up with all of this excess stuff and it's like, if I throw it out, I'm contributing to food waste. And meanwhile, I know there's some of my friends, you know, they, they ran out of meal swipes, and so they came up with a solution to have a share table where they could put like their extra ramens or their extra Gatorades that maybe they're not going to consume, but someone else might. Um, and they actually wrote a letter to the, um, the residence halls, and they were able to implement a share table in their dorm. So again, giving them the incentive and the empowerment to actually not just come up with a solution, but enact it. So here are some other examples of learning experiences. Um, here we had someone who worked in the cocoa industry come and talk to the kids. So again, like a real life application of like, this is a career, someone actually does work in this area and he brought all the different, um, the, the beans, the pods, uh, the chocolate, uh, you can also see during our study of deforestation and urban development in New Jersey, we partnered with um, the New Jersey Forest Association and we went to an urban setting and planted trees by a nearby school. Um, and the children also, that top picture, participated in helping planting trees on our own school grounds. So again, really reinforcing the things that they learned and it was hard work. I mean, at the end of the day, um, particularly the bottom pictures, these were in Newark. We planted two trees. It took us all day um, because the soil was so poor um, and so rocky. And the kids walked away being like, I cannot believe how much work it takes to plant a single tree. And I cannot believe that entire forests get cut down at the stamp of a finger. So like, again, developing this critical thinking application um, and it definitely made them think about things differently. Um, kids were going home asking their family to check labels of, does it have the Rainforest Alliance sticker on it? Um, I wanna make sure that what we're buying, you know, isn't cutting down trees. Obviously that's a luxury choice, um, but again, it's making them start to think about how their actions impact the environment and our planet. Service learning, again, important component. Um, you know, big thing in education is um, moving away from community service. So um, we don't want to be doing projects that are done on or for community. We want to revisit some assumptions, worldviews. Um, and so seeking out issues and solutions um, that are requested by the communities themselves. So we didn't say, hey, we think that Newark is a really non-green urban community. You could use more trees. Um, we sought out organizations that were already looking for support and we helped fill that need. Same thing at the school. We didn't just plant trees to plant trees. Um, the groundskeeper was actually getting ready to do that. We said if there are any opportunities for our students to learn how to plant and garden, we would love to do that in an authentic way. Um, and so we were gonna, given the opportunity to do that work. Um, so I do think um, integrating your work into service learning is a really powerful opportunity to give your learners a chance to see their work 
impacting communities um, and what, what kind of work that takes. So again, these are some different types of activities you might be doing um, for your learning experiences, the different types of pedagogical approaches you might be applying um, in doing that. So again, we're gonna take about five minutes. I want you to think about what is just one. Obviously, if you're doing a unit or a curriculum, you're gonna have a number of activities, but I want you to think about like one project or one learning experience that you might use um, to convey and for your learners to either apply or to develop some understandings of a concept that goes back to all of your desired results. So we'll take like three to five minutes. Um, once you have that written down, you can share amongst your tables um, and then maybe we'll have some volunteers share their activity with us. So it would help just to like, is there any resources you wanted to help with or anything like that? That's a good idea. Yeah. 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 And if you have a specific request for a specific resource. Yeah, that's a great idea.
through the paycheck. Only people are staying. Yeah. Not because they're young, but like you create the right environment and ask the right questions. Yeah. And that, and I think they like they rise to the occasion because they aren't being talked down to. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, you're taking seriously as like a person. I do a similar thing with my class too. And like everyone leaves being like, oh wow, I'll never like eat that food the same again. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like I had one student present about cashews. And do you know, like, they were like, oh my God, I can't believe how like toxic, like it's a danger <laughs> to like collect That's when we had like kids try broccoli because we taught her to look in it and there was like flour. Like they never would have eaten. I'm eating the flour. And you're just like, okay, whatever gets the job done. That's so great. We'll take about one more minute. Timed, timed math tests. Yeah, a lot of rote memorization. Yeah. Memorize the capitals and memorize. New York City is the big city in New York. That's not the capital. Yeah. So, like, you know, it's just. Yeah. It was like, very anxiety inducing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Does anyone have a learning experience they'd like to share or heard about a learning experience they'd like to share? Because one of your learning experience ideas might be helpful to someone else, and they might be able to use it in their curriculum. No? Well, I'll, I'll take the group discussions. That's, that's good enough. <laughs> um, we're going to be going into a debrief session in a moment, but I just wanted to think about um, this quote. It is not enough for education to produce individuals who can read, write, and count. Education must fully assume its central role in helping people to forge more just, peaceful, tolerant, and inclusive societies. And I think no matter what discipline that you're in, 
you are all educators, and I do think and believe that whatever we're teaching, the main purpose should be this. Um, the ripple effect of this will be happy, healthier societies, planets, people. Um, and I think if we just keep this in the forefront of what we're thinking about, then a lot of those learning experiences and enduring understandings will come pretty naturally. Um, so to take a moment, we're gonna think about kind of a debrief um, and we're gonna be doing what is called like a conversation protocol. And so this comes from, highly recommend if you're working with adult learners or college age learners, um, conversation protocols. They're really great for generating conversation and keeping conversations on track. Um, this one I pulled from the School of Reform Initiative. Um, they're great for learning communities too. So if you're in um, a professional learning community or a community of practice, this can really help focus your time and your conversations. Um, so the way that this process goes is that I'm gonna have a kind of combined table so that we're in two groups. Um, and the purpose of this protocol is to analyze how a new understanding has developed and the factors that helped the understanding to develop. Um, so there are going to be roles. We're gonna have a timekeeper and a facilitator um, just to help the group stay focused. Um, and we're gonna be um, defining understanding as being able to use what you know f flexibly in unfamiliar situations or to address new problems, which hopefully all of you, that's kind of the context of why you're here. Um, so the first part is going to be under, identifying and understanding. So I have the general steps here, but I'm gonna just kind of lay it out um, more in depth up here. So you're gonna take about 10 minutes to reflect on and then write a short description of one new understanding that you have developed or deepened. Um, you can note the processes, the experiences, um, things like that that led to that understanding. And some guiding questions are, what about the process took me well beyond what I already knew? What confusions emerged and how did I or how could I overcome them? And was this experience different from other learning experiences I've had? And if so, how? So everyone will kind of take a moment to do that, to jot that down. And then you will go around the table and share your understandings. No one will respond. You'll just kind of do a whip around and share what you jotted down. Next, the group will ask clarifying questions if there are any. So asking questions about the details, um, like aspects about the understanding, just to understand better. So those are clarifying questions. Everyone will go around in a circle to ask a clarifying question. If you don't have one, you can pass. Um, then the group will reflect on the process of understanding. So the group will discuss what they heard the presenter describing. So you can address anyone in your circle. Um, and some thinking points. What was interesting to you about the process that was described? What helped take the presenter well beyond what they already knew? And what follow-up or probing questions might you want to pose? Um, the presenter will respond after you reflect and discuss those understandings. Um, and then 
This says protocol begins again for the next group member. You're just gonna kind of go around the circle and do this as a full group. Um, then as a group, you'll talk about the strategies that you can use to continue to nurture the de development of these understandings once you've gone back to your settings. So like, what are you gonna do with those learnings? Um, and then we take some time to appreciate, celebrate the new understandings, and then we'll debrief as a whole group. So why don't I have, I think those three tables in the back, we can have you group up. We'll have this middle table and the two back tables. You can just combine. You can either go to one of the, your existing tables or to a new table. Um, and then I will be kind of the facilitator in posing the questions and the timing, but we can also have someone within the group making sure we're staying on task. Sound good? All right, you can also use this if you wanna grab some water, coffee, stretch your legs, um, as we're kind of doing a, a movement opportunity. So before we start our conversation rounds, um, why don't we just take a moment to go around and introduce ourselves and our context to our tables. You should just kind of do a quick whip around. So your name, um, your role, and what context that you are teaching in. Yeah. Now, it's like you when you have 
there for someone. It's a real bummer. And it's humid. So when your group is ready and you're done with your introductions, you can go in the same order and we're going to do what we call a whip around um, to identify an understanding. So something new that you're taking away from today doesn't have to be groundbreaking. It could literally be like, oh, this graphic organizer is really great. Um, so you're going to identify an understanding, something that you're taking away from today. Uh, while you're doing your whip around and describing that, no one's going to respond. You're just going to do that. And then after everyone has shared, we'll move into our next conversation phase. So why don't you take a minute or two to just think of something, jot it down, and then when your group is ready, you can do the whip around share.
So I'm hearing some really great conversations at both tables. Um, I would like to direct our conversations to kind of talk about the strategies that you're going to continue to try and nurture. Maybe, maybe you have another session over this conference that's going to build off of an understanding that you shared with your group. Um, so something that you're planning to continue to nurture and develop, um, or something that you're going planning to use once you go back to your settings. Um, so we'll do a quick whip around of that and then kind of debrief, um, and then I think we'll break a little early for lunch. So um, go ahead and share again. It's something that you're going to continue to nurture and develop or something that you're going to bring home to your setting with you from today.
All right. So let's kind of regroup. I loved hearing about everyone's different experiences, their roles, um, their takeaways. Why don't we take like, we can have like one, a couple of people share perhaps something that they're going to continue pursuing or something that they're taking back to their setting. Anyone want to share? I could probably sum, I can summarize a couple of big ideas that I heard from both tables. Um, so when I was over here, we had a really nice discussion just about um, engaging learners and what are some ways that we can get our learners to be more flexible in their thinking, think critically about things so that we can enact some of these um, inquiry-based learning approaches, um, things like that. I did offer some other additional resources that aren't on your sheet. So um, Harvard's Project Zero is a really great educational resource for that like metacognitive um, and thinking, thinking routines. Um, I've also put on that sheet um, making thinking visible, which is great. And then um, there's a text called Opening Minds, which is also a great education text. Um, and I also offered, I last minute threw this QR code up on the presentation. This is a link to my living document that is um, my curriculum guide for the undergraduate course I teach. So while I showed in the presentation a lot of examples from the K-12 sphere, um, if you are someone who is looking to apply more complex um, content or you're working with older populations, uh, you can see my actual application of our curriculum template um, to an undergraduate course. Uh, my course was essentially food systems and feminist pedagogy, so um, hopefully, hopefully you'll pick that up throughout the curriculum guide or I didn't do a very good job. Um, and then this group had a really interesting conversation just about like how far spread the content that we're talking about can go from like eating disorders and body image and um, capitalism and food advertising and how it can kind of go back to these big ideas of, again, how can we develop some critical thinkers? How can we develop learners who when they go to the grocery store are not categorizing foods as good or bad, but they know how to read a nutrition label and are empowered with the choice of, do I buy this orange fruit or do I buy the orange fruit snacks, right? Um, we don't want to put that moral judgment on it, but we want to empower them with enough knowledge to know enough about that orange fruit and to know enough about that food label that they can make that choice as an active citizen. Um, so really great conversations. Um, again, thank you all for spending your day with us on the first day. Um, I think we have a couple of announcements and then we'll break early for lunch. So, send Courtney. Thanks, everyone.
that is working. Um, so yeah, we'll break for lunch. But afterward, I just wanted to remind you that we will be talking through more of the theoretical conceptualizations of food literacy. So what that would look like in terms of um, developing an international definition. And we'd love you to be able to contribute to us developing that international definition. And also to develop, um, are we talking through developing a measure of food literacy, what that looks like, how we've done it before. Um, and then obviously very open um, and keen for your thoughts about that too. Uh, so we'll be doing that after the break. So just a reminder, we would love to have you back for that. Um, and so I will have a sign-in sheet at the back um, because we are going to hopefully publish the international definition that we will develop here today and also based on the work we're doing at the World Food Forum closer toward the end of the year. Um, and so we'd just love for your consent um, to use the responses and the feedback that you give us in these sessions for the research. But if you don't consent, that is also completely fine and you are still able to fully contribute um, to the conversations that we have. So so it's a 45 minute lunch break, Erin, that's right? Yeah, yeah. So what's the time? So it is almost midday now. So maybe we'll come back at about 12.45 uh, and we'll keep kicking off from there. So thanks everyone.
Hey everyone, so I've just got the piece of paper for you to pop your name down um, if you want to consent to participate in the research so we can use your responses to inform our international definition of food literacy. And if you want us to send you any of the resources like the slides or anything from today, I know some people are having trouble in the app. I've got the sign-in sheet at the table right near the entrance there. So if you haven't already, if you wouldn't mind just popping your name on there and signing off, that would be great. If you guys want to come closer or like join in on a table with people, we've got some group discussions, so you might want to, yeah, have a chat then. Um, can I confirm, Helen, are you online there? Yes. Awesome. All right. I think we're probably ready to get started. I'm conscious of the time too. So are you happy to start with this first part now? Yes. Awesome. Yes, that'd be great. Okay, cool. All right. Just let me know when you want me to change the slides then. <laughs> no worries. Um, so actually, Courtney, can we just take it off the slides for a second? Yeah. And I just was wanting to get a bit of a sense of who's left in the room and what people's backgrounds are. Yep. Um, can we, oh, what do you need me to do so you can see? <laughs> I can see the, I can see the room now. Oh, perfect. Okay, um, yep. All right, you're up on the I'm screen. I'm sort yeah. of way in the corner, so I can't really oh, see okay. people's faces, but yep. that's okay. If I can sort of see how many people are there and I was just wondering if people wanted to just give a, I know that you probably all introduce yourselves to each other, but maybe who you are and where you work. Yeah, sounds good. Do you guys want to start at this front table here, if that's all right? Awesome. I might just see if we can get a mic. Oh, you can here. Oh, yeah. That's what I was going to Oh, perfect. That's great. I was hoping you'd do that. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, okay, great. Hi. Hi, what an honour to meet you, Dr. Vidjan, <laughs> because you're in my master's thesis. Thank you. Um, oh, great. Yeah. And, and Courtney too. Um, my name is Kathy Langdon. I'm from Canada, Saskatchewan. I work at the University of Saskatchewan in our dietetic program um, as uh, an academic staff person. And um, uh, I have a real interest in food literacy. And as I was saying, um, I just finished defending my master's thesis and it was about food literacy and dietetic education. So you guys are both in it. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> and I have a poster That's here. So, so interesting. So come by and see my poster. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so were you were you looking at it from a public health perspective or a clinical perspective or across the health continuum for dietetic education or Right. So what I um, the title of my uh, study was Experiences and Perspectives of Dietetic Educators in Incorporating Food Literacy into the Dietetic Education Curriculum. And this is because in 2020, we had our new uh, edu educational standards uh, released. And you guys do competencies, and so does the US, and so do we. And so one of our new competencies for our students was foster food literacy and others. So I thought I would take a look. And it's fairly new days. You know, um, excuse me. <coughs> uh, I wanted to take a look at, like, how are we doing? 
struggling with that. What do di dietetic educators, like how do they understand food literacy because it's so new, have some interesting insights on that. And, um, <laughs> and then how are we doing with incorporating it? So that was the perspective. So it's fairly broad if that answers your question. Oh, that's fascinating. Because we're just, yeah, we're just doing an honours project with somebody at the moment looking at um, clinical dietetics okay. and food literacy and consultations. And we were trying to look and see, we figured something must be happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, I'll be oh, looking really forward to your, your paper on that. And we're going to try and publish a paper on my thesis too. Um, so um, we'll see if that happens. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, next. I'm Who Nancy Sawyer. I work for the Butler County WIC program. I've worked for WIC in four different states for 20 plus, 25 plus years. And I'm here just because I'm interested in what really food literacy means. And also, you know, I think about the families that we serve and their food literacy and where does their information come from and, and how do they how does that literacy inform the choices that they make? And how can we as educators influence the choices that they make? And so with WIC, because we don't have anything like that in Australia, we just hear a lot about it. What, what are, are people using the term food literacy or uh, because it wouldn't have existed. I mean, the WIC program's done a lot to develop people's food literacy over, particularly if you've been working there for more than 20 years. What sort of terminology have you used to, to kind of describe that? So are the families that we serve, I don't think the term food literacy is e no. it's not even close to their radar and i don't yes. think it's even on the radar of the professionals who are working within wic you know i think that we're still sort of stuck in the didactic you know i've been working for wic for many years and i still see new dietitians coming into wic that are wanting to do a lesson plan on calcium or protein and how it affects the body and not really getting at the root of educating on based on their you know people's information about food and I think changing that paradigm and encouraging professionals to think more about not just nutrition as the science, but nutrition as the practice. And is that where you think, is, has that been your appeal to seeing, because this is all related to the section that we're doing, not just having side conversations. Is, is that been the appeal for you of that terminology? Because I must say, like when I first, I came, first came into, I, I didn't particularly like the term food literacy. And I thought well, at the beginning of my thesis, the first study I did was, you know, do people like that? Do health, different health professionals like that term? Um, do they find it useful? And then it kind of became a moot point because the field had kind of developed enough by then that everybody was using the term. So it was sort of like, okay, well, let's give this a meaning that is it performs the function that people need it to. So I guess what's the function that you think it needs to do that's separate to how people are currently 
thinking and working in WIC? I don't have a good answer for you because I haven't thought about it that much. I'm, you know, I think professionals in my field would use it more if they really knew more about it and knew what it really meant and, okay. knew, how, and knew how it applied to the work that they did. Because it's always, for us, it's always about where the rubber meets the road and serving yeah. the families that we serve. Because we're frontline people. Yeah, that's so interesting. Okay, next person. Hello, my name is Alyssa Whitaker. I work for University of Delaware Cooperative Extension. I'm an extension agent, and most of my position is funded through SNAPED. Um, so with my SNAPED work, I primarily work in the K-12 school system. I go into health and phys ed classes and teach nutrition curriculum in some of our more under-resourced school districts. And I also do some education in community settings, um, community centers, libraries, um, to reach families and youth with nutrition education. And so what's your background, Elizabeth? So we don't have those sort of roles in Australia. So are they, yeah. is it a so my background is in health behavior and health promotion, um, and I've I previously was a high school teacher, and that's kind of what um, drove my pivot to teaching about nutrition and health. Um, so yeah, I, I would say my my role is really um, about fostering community connection, community resources, community education. And so are you employed sort of through departments of health or departments of no, education? I, I, um, I work with our extension system. So um, the extension system is all across the U.S. There's, I believe, at least one in every state across the U.S. out of our land-grant universities. Um, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a, okay. It's a little bit um, agriculture and also um, family and consumer science. Um, so I'm in the family and consumer science sector of our extension. And would you say family and consumer science is becoming more popular, less popular? Um, I think that the content within it is becoming um, more popular, but I think the term, we actually changed our naming of our family and consumer science to health and well-being. Um, I think that the term isn't as relatable, but the, the content of it, um, the health, nutrition, the growing of foods, the managing of, you know, financial literacy, um, mm -hmm. managing health insurance is something else we do. Okay. Things like this is, is super relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say similarly in Australia, you know, we have home economics but it's um it doesn't exist as a distinct subject area like it used to it it's absorbed into other areas health and technologies um in our school curriculum mm. thank you thanks thank Elizabeth you. Um, just really quickly while I'm walking across the room, um, we've got the sign-in sheet just at the entranceway there to participate in the research. So we'd just like everyone to tick that off. Um, again, like I said, 
um, yes or no, it doesn't matter, you're still able to fully participate in the workshop. Hello, um, I'm Jean O'Brien. I work for USDA Food Nutrition Service in the Mountain Plains region. So we have eight states, 30 sovereign nations that we work with to administrate, uh, administrate nutrition assistance programs. Um, I have been with federal government for almost three decades, so just have a lot of experience uh, in how we provide nutrition education, how we set up our programs to meet nutritional needs. Um, this administration is very focused on health equity and uh, changing the definition from food security to nutrition security, so it's, it's been a very interesting time to think through uh, how we meet needs and the underlying uh, social determinants of health and how that influences consumer decision-making and the like. And so um, I guess in terms of your interest in food literacy, do you see that there's a pressure to invest in, I guess, skill development in people who are food and nutrition insecure rather than looking at higher level determinants and sort of looking at how to do that and look at the relative contribution of those individual skills to food and nutrition security is is that sort of your interest in the area i, th I think my interest is more along the lines of looking at it holistically like yeah um addressing underlying social determinants of health at the same time that uh, you're increasing awareness some consumer awareness and how the federal government can, you know, the, the role that the federal government can play in kind of creating the, the awareness, placing the resources so that it's kind of comprehensively addressed since it yeah. is such a complex, complex issue. And I'm just very interested in, in how that this is going to be an international definition, how the other countries are are tackling this. I think we can learn so much from each other. Um, and I, I appreciate that you're all doing this because it is such a complex <laughs> issue between knowing knowing something and having the desire and the wherewithal to do something about that. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, um, my name is Priscilla Ofori. Um, I work with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Um, so similar, I think when I walked in, I was listening to somebody else from another land grant. So a similar approach, um, SNAP-ed population, meaning lower income individuals. Um, and our program approaches the lifespan. So increasing access to fruits and vegetables, consumption, um, physical activity, um, and as well as like gardening practices, which ties into the food access portion of it. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm a project specialist, and I work more on the back end of the materials that are actually um, provided to our to our agents, who then implement with our participants. And is that extension program? Is it national? Yes, yeah, so all all land grant universities will have an extension program attached to it. Okay. And is the what's the objective of the extension program? 
that's very broad, actually. It's <laughs> a really hard question to answer. Um, I, I can speak for um, Texas A&M's extension, and we really do have so many different approaches because nutrition is one small portion of what extension does because we even have like a department that does like military outreach programs for like military farmers and it's just a very broad, it's a very broad umbrella, but um, it's really just resources for the community, like things that people don't realize. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't realize um, extension exists and we just have so many opportunities for children, um, adults, teens, and just the whole lifespan, older adults. So it, it is kind of broad to explain, but I would say it's more about community resource, like we're there as a community resource. And so is it looking at kind of um, community connectedness and social capital, sort of? Or is it really looking at being responsive to what communities' needs are across that's, a broad spectrum. That's more of what it is, the latter. <clears throat> Sorry, the latter. It's really just trying to find what is relevant in our communities and what the community is looking for. So meeting those needs, yes. Mm -hmm. Hi, uh, my name is Eugenia Gusev. I work with the International Rescue Committee, IRC is a pretty large organization in the US or one of the largest like, refugee resettlement agencies, but we also serve other types of newcomer populations, asylees, tr human trafficking victims, unaccompanied minors. Um, abroad, we also work in conflict-affected and disaster-affected countries. Um, in the US, we're in over 28 different states. And um, I personally, with my colleague, who's not here today, but she will be later on um, this weekend, uh, we oversee a network of land-based programs that IRC runs. So we do food and agricultural work with um, newcomer populations and their communities. So it very much focuses on urban agriculture, nutrition education, food systems literacy. Um, we work along the spectrum of entire, you know, we impact entire families through our programming. We also have youth food justice programs that are funded by farm to school type um, funding through the United States Department of Agriculture. Uh, part of my time is also funded by um, a grant through the CDC that focuses on developing resources for Afghan and Ukrainian communities. Um, it's called NRC RIM and is through the University of Minnesota. So we're basically subgranting through the University of Minnesota. Um, so there's, we do, you know, a lot of different types of programming. So there's high touch programming, which includes educational components. We provide and facilitate access to land for people to farm and produce their own food. We connect those people that would like to earn an income from farming to, um, to the entire value chain. Uh, for others, it's more about food security and community. So we do a lot of kind of high touch um, education and community kind of um, community building uh, activities with people uh, to connect them to each other and to to the communities that they're now living in. Um, in schools, we work closely with educators. Um, we also have a lot of other different grassroots partners like food banks. Um, yeah, I could talk about it for a long time, but I probably shouldn't. But if you have any questions, let me know. Yeah, so I guess. Um, when you're thinking about food literacy and the work that you do, is it the, is it the sort of work that you might 
do with people when they're settling and understanding their new food environment? Yes. So that's that's definitely part of that work. And I mean, we, we do work with new arrivals, but we also work with people that come to us after three, five, eight years of being in the United States um, because they're you know, they're, they're settled, but they're looking to do farm work, for example, but they okay. might, they might in some instances still be, um, experiencing food insecurity issues, but yeah, so it's, I, I did, I did say food systems literacy uh, kind of on purpose because we, you know, we talk about the differences between, you know, and what, what they're encountering here in the U S food system and how that's different than what they're, you know, yeah. what they're used to back home and the fact that they're often living in neighborhoods where they're cut off from fresh fruits and vegetables or the varieties, yeah. right, that they're familiar with. So I think it's a different angle potentially than others, maybe in this room, yeah. maybe not, but that definitely is part of what we do. Yeah. Great. Hi, I'm Melissa Prescott. I am an assistant professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Um, and my primary research area is on food waste reduction and food recovery. I'm very interested in food literacy because I view food waste as a symptom of poor food literacy. I also am very interested in food systems education and, and food systems literacy as well, especially with young people and decreasing the um, psychological distance that most Americans have from the food system as well as the waste disposal system. And Melissa, do you teach? What do you teach at university? Like, who, uh, who do you teach? A nutrition policy course, mostly. It's undergrad and grad. And is it to what sort of jobs are people doing after that? Like, what sort of professions are they entering? Um, it's a mix, you know, dietetics. There's certainly a lot of dietitians, nutrition scientists. We have some pre-med folks and other pre-health folks, um, but mostly like health-oriented careers, public health. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Hi, my name is Susana Matias. I am also an extension. I am extension faculty at the University of California, uh, Berkeley. Um, there, I am also one of the leaders of what we call the Berkeley Food Institute. They have several um, specific mission statements, and one of them relates to access to good food. Um, my working extension is um, basically focused on uh, conducting applied research, and um, extension comes from extending the knowledge, and kind of what we extension are is I always use the metaphor that we are a bridge between all the science and, and, and the, the knowledge that is being built on the campuses to the different community groups. Um, I, I mentioned this as a joke, nutrition is part of extension, but it's kind of like the left behind child. Um, mostly extension is focused on agriculture and have been serving farmers and sometimes industry also. What we nutrition people do usually is connect with the communities and that could be anything. My work focuses on mother and child. I am very fond of breastfeeding, which is the first food in the food system. Um, 
I am also working on schools, um, but mostly not in the school, but with the schools. We are currently trying to support a school district in our area to evaluate their um, programming that includes renovating the cafeterias, um, infrastructure, but also um, cooking from scratch, which sounds like how it should be, but it hasn't been. So bringing that back, having a whole program, um, a whole garden, and they even now have a farm that have connected with our extension master gardeners and also our extension, uh, well, I'm gonna try to bring the master food preservers, for example. Um, that's one of the, um, the works I do with K-12, and I also, right now, currently working with a children's hospital to try to develop several um, small units or modules to uh, train their um, residents. Uh, we'll start with breastfeeding, but we'll move from that also into hopefully bringing them to our campus where we have a teaching kitchen. Um, I very recently, as part of a produce prescription project, ran into the question of what is food literacy? And we realized that there were several <laughs> definitions and it wasn't exactly what we thought it was or what we thought it was a unified definition. Um, mm -hmm. And also, um, also right now in the um, situation where I have to measure it. And I would like to know better what it is so I can select a tool more um, confidently. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Hi everyone, my name is Bridget Horsey and I am an early career academic. I work sessionally at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Australia. Um, so I am currently undertaking my PhD and the research focus of that is actually understanding food literacy but in the Pacific Island context uh, because primarily most of my research to now has focused on um, that Pacific Islander populations around food systems and food security and more recently um, school food as well. Um, to support myself being a student, I also work <laughs> for myself and I run food literacy workshops with um, young adults with intellectual disabilities. Um, and it, it's, it, most of the focus is around food selection, food preparation um, and that eating socially together and food safety and so forth. So um, I guess I'm really curious <laughs> today around what, how everyone perceives this international de definition, if, if we can, if we can't, um, of what that could look like, because it um, would help inform my research <laughs> a lot as well. So yeah, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. So Bridget, you mean over in Pacific Islands, not Pacific Islanders in Australia, don't you? Yes. So yeah, yeah not not in. I Australia. think I'm familiar with a little bit of the work that you're doing up on the Sunshine Coast. But yeah. So, sorry, I missed that. No, I think I've seen a little bit of the work that's ah, happening on the Sunshine Coast. Yeah. But yeah, it's just yeah. double checking. Yeah. yeah. So far, it's all been uh, the the countries of the Pacific Islands. Yeah. Not in Australia. <laughs> Um, hi, I am Zubeda Kumar from San Francisco State University in the Nutrition and Dietetics Department. Um, good to meet you, Helen. Virtually, I've kind of cited your paper and used it a few times. So now it's good to see your face and the person behind. Um, I am mostly interested in understanding the role of food literacy in mitigating food insecurity. So my research 
area is basically looking at food insecurity um, in higher education settings. So predominantly college age students, but I'm, I'm from the Bay Area in California, if anyone knows anything about that. It's a very expensive area. So we kind of started looking into um, food insecurity for faculty, staff, and administrators as well, um, and how we can use you know, food literacy to mitigate some of the food insecurity issues that, that we're noticing. So that's kind of my main um, interest in food literacy, specifically to mitigate food insecurity issues in different populations. Um, and that's, that's some of the studies that I'm running right now kind of focus on that as well. All right, uh, hi. Uh, my name is Michelle Riley. I am a teaching faculty member at the University of Kansas, uh, but I just recently finished my PhD developing an objective food literacy tool. Um, I worked with Dr. Heather Gibbs. You may know some of her work in the nutrition literacy yeah. Uh, yeah. tool. So I, I developed a food literacy tool that was similar in, in conceptual layout to the, the inlet tool that um, objectively assesses uh, both food and nutrition literacy. Um, so, you know, that's a big thing too. What is the difference between nutrition and food literacy and how do they overlap? Yeah. Um, and there's lots of different ideas on that, you know, in the literature, depending on who you talk to. Um, and so I think, you know, clarifying the definition will be very interesting. Um, one really, really small finding from my study that's not published, but maybe is interesting to this conversation, is that we had a small sample of who, students who identified themselves as international students to the US. And they actually, as a whole, st scored statistically significantly lower on our food literacy tool. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're not food literate. It may mean that the tool you know, was focused on measuring food literacy in Americans, not you know, um, students who are not from here. So that's just something to think about when we think about the international definition and how we're measuring it internationally. Um, I think it's so important to have a consistent definition and measurement, but how do we incorporate all of that in a way that it doesn't necessarily penalize individuals and they look like they're lower, they have lower food literacy when they don't, maybe they just navigate a food system or look at these things in a different way. Yeah, it's fascinating. Mm. And, and I, I will say your name. Yeah, your name is in my dissertation more than my own. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's very nice to meet you. I'm totally fangirling out today. I'll have a massive head by the end of this. Hi, uh, my name is Vinay Raj. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the uh, University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff, in the uh, departments of biology and computer science. Uh, my background is in bioinformatics and uh, my work has been predominantly uh, with genomics as it relates to chronic diseases. Um, so my interest in food literacy is more in terms of how I could uh, implement this as a curriculum for my students, um, as well as um, I'm part of a group which is working on uh, food and nutrition security, uh, especially as it relates to the Mississippi Delta the Delta region, and so how we could uh, improve the food literacy over there, especially uh, change the cultural perspective on like um, what they've been taught over the generations and how we could hopefully change that mindset to uh, be more um, food literate. Thank you. 
Okay. Thank you. Hello, um, my name is Madeline Howe. I'm a registered dietitian at my local health department in Tennessee, and I work primarily in community health with a focus on chronic disease prevention across the lifespan. Um, my team and I work on implementing policy systems and environmental change, and so today I'm here because I have an interest in how we can incorporate food literacy into the programs that we implement and how it relates to chronic disease prevention, um, food and nutrition security, as well as just general well-being. Right, thank you. Hi, I'm Lakeisha Crumpler. Um, I'm with the University of Florida, and you've already heard from like Texas and a few other areas, so I'm also under that extension umbrella. So University of Florida is also a land-grant university. Um, I'm also a registered dietitian, so right now um, I help with the nutrition educators that are out in the community, help with the training on the nutrition curricula that they're teaching. Um, and then my interest really personal, of course, because my background is, you know, I'm a dietitian, but also in public health, that's what my master's is in. But I just needed to know more about food literacy, because of course when I was doing my, you know, undergrad and grad, we weren't really talking about it, and now it seems like it's talked about a whole lot more. Um, I also formerly have a WIC background too, so I feel like I kind of bounce in all these areas that other people have touched. Um, but I'm not doing any research right now, but it is a grant-funded program that I work with. Um, and I want to find a way to understand it myself and then figure out how it can be like kind of implemented into our programs or into some of the curricula we're using if possible. Thanks everyone, that's all Helen. <laughs> Well, um, that's really amazing. I think um, there's such a breadth of people there. We really weren't sure. And when we sort of saw the um, list of attendants, we couldn't really tell. We didn't, you know, know many names or any names really. And we couldn't really tell what your background was. But that's just such a fabulous background and breadth to have in the room. I must say I stopped looking at as once I you know, decided I wasn't going to be able to come to the conference face-to-face. -face. I had to stop looking at, like, LinkedIn posts and stuff because I thought, oh, it just looks like it's going to be such a great conference and would have learnt so much because all of those areas that you're working just sound really fascinating and, and super relevant. Um, I might um, skip through these next few bits a bit, a little bit differently to how we were going to move through them because I think a lot of what you, you've mentioned um, is it, well, we were going to be touching on anyway. Um, so Courtney, maybe if we can just go straight to the, that just that diagram slide of what I did for my PhD and I'll just quickly talk that through and then we might go back to components if that's all right. Yeah, that sounds good. Are we able to swap back to the PowerPoint slide now? Just let me know if this is not the right slide too, Helen. <laughs> yeah, sure. I've got this is a pretty yeah. small but mighty group, I have to say.
Is this the right one? I can't see anything yet, but yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Um, so this is just a quick diagram to explain what I did in my PhD. And my PhD was started in 2010, so it's a, a good while ago now. So I started, as I mentioned, I was in the Department of Health and I felt like a lot of people had different opinions on what food literacy meant. So I did an expert Delphi study first. Um, it just in Australia only, but it um, looked at experts from a, a range of different food areas. So people writing the food and nutrition curriculum for schools, um, some of our most famous cookbook authors, academics in gastronomy, um, nutritionists, uh, people working in the welfare sector and asked them what um, they thought the components of food literacy were. They, they came up with over 80 different possible things. And then in the second round, um, we kind of mapped it on need to know, nice to know, and only came up with six that people agreed were absolutely critical. Um, I had I only just left the Department of Health at the time and I'd been working there for some time and I was Director of Public Health Nutrition at one point. So I was pretty closely linked with practitioners. So the next thing we did was to talk to practitioners about what interventions were they involved in that they considered to be about food literacy. And then we pulled them apart to see whether or not they included these components that experts had identified. And then we put all of that to the side and we, I interviewed um, young people across the spectrum of disadvantage. And I partnered with um, the Australian Red Cross who were working with people experiencing homelessness. It was all young people, so people sort of 16 to 25, although the mean age was around 19. Um, and then, so I was looking across the spectrum of disadvantage. So that was um, people experiencing homelessness, people who had gone through a period of, um, I guess, social exclusion and were just starting to re-engage with key institutions. So predominantly people moving to stable housing or re-engaging in the healthcare system after being in juvenile detention or something like that. Then um, people who were disadvantaged just by their, we have, what's called a CEFA score, so a geographic, geographically describing where you live as being disadvantaged and describing you as disadvantaged from that metric. Um, and then at the other end of the spectrum, um, university business graduates. Um, and to, I did live course interviewing with them around um, what did they think were these essential knowledge and skills that they'd acquired over their life course and how did they go about feeding themselves and the household they were currently or their current living situation and the one back from that and the one back from that and we worked back that way. Um, I then used constant comparative techniques to look at the results from those three studies, privileging the information from the lived experience of the young people to kind of identify these components that sat across um, you, irrespective of your socioeconomic circumstances. And from that developed a final um, definition, a set of components and modelled its relationship to food intake. Um, so if you go to the next slide, Courtney. Um, so then that's where this model came from that you've probably, it sounds like a, a fair few of you are familiar with. Um, so it's that food literacy is a co collection of interrelated knowledge, skills and behaviours required to plan and manage, select, prepare and eat food that meets needs and determines food intake. And it's the scaffolding that empowers individuals 
households, communities or nations to protect diet quality through change and strengthen dietary resilience over time. So I guess that definition got published in 2014 and the 11 components that are within it. Um, we also, it's less well known, but developed a model that you saw a few slides ago earlier in the presentation of how that might relate to food intake and how the relationship between food literacy and food intakes really um, limited by the social determinants of health. Um, and so that, 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 that food literacy is um, only so powerful in, in overcoming those circumstances. There's a limit to what, can, what food literacy can achieve. And there's a amazing quote from a woman that I interviewed that was living under a bridge. Um, and I asked her what she does when she gets um, a food voucher and she doesn't know when she'll get the next one. And she articulates this most perfect um, way that she's identifying all these different food needs, all these different skills. You couldn't ask for someone to articulate um, a more food literate um, response, but um, it wasn't really going to change the circumstances that she was in or particularly the quality of the diet um, that she was having. So that was a really useful, I guess, study designed to describe where food literacy sat in the context of broader public health nutrition programs, which I guess for me was a context I was coming from. Um, the holy grail was always, and I must say when I undertook my PhD, I thought I'd be coming up with a measure by the end of it. And as the research progressed, by the time I got to the confirmation stage, my panel sort of said, oh, look, this is too complex to be flat out coming up with a definition, let alone a measure. So then I kind of embarked on this quest of trying to find funding and ways of a measure being developed. And that's where Courtney came in. So that was quite a few years later. And I guess when Courtney then first started, we we the, the field had progressed a bit more and we went back to this, oh, wow, is there a consensus view on what food literacy means? And so Courtney's going to talk you through a fairly extensive um, literature review, that scoping review that she did to look at um, how the term's conceptualised, where it's used and what definitions are cited. Then in terms of moving on to the development of a measure, identification of items and then where we did that with experts, where they agreed, where they didn't. Then when we talked to, um, when we, we pooled items from existing tools, when we talked to, we did our face validity, how do people understand some things that we thought were commonly understood? And then finally, kind of, I guess, the more um, quantitative validation side of things and how did those items relate to each other, which all kind of raised a lot more questions around how do we understand this construct and your comment um the person that's just finished their phd about country context is so fascinating because i think when i first came up with this definition part of the where how my thesis reads is to say it's contextually dependent and um i think that's really proven to be the case i'm involved in quite a few people's phds around the world or either on their panels or on assessing them and they all seem to come up with this same problem if you like of the importance of context and how 
whilst in, I've always been stunned and continue to be stunned at how much resonance this model's had around the world. Um, but then when it actually come to its measurement, um, less so. Um, and that's that's where it's been a lot more contextual. So Courtney's going to um, talk you through the next few stages of what she did. Courtney, I don't know if you first want to get people's thoughts on what they think food literacy includes or do that now or do that later. I'll leave that up to you. Well, I was going to say it's up to you. <laughs> oh, well, we might put it in now because I think it's a useful yep. thing, especially since all of you are coming from different backgrounds. We just thought we would get you to um, give us your thoughts already. I think some of you have talked about from some food systems factors, issues around provenance, um, concepts of food waste, it, like all of those broad breadth of things. I mean, I know those of you who are working in the field know that there's been lots of different, you know, most people's conceptualisations or measures start with some sort of um, a process with experts. Um, uh, so we're not expecting this to be as comprehensive as that, but just to to get a breadth of, of um, seeing how much that aligns with, with what's out there. And I will just jump in to say, I know a few people had trouble with Menti before, and if you did, and if you want to actually call out your response instead, Helen, I'm going to put you on the spot and say if you wouldn't mind scribing those down. <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll grab my pen. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, if you want me to pass you the microphone, just... Just yell out. So yeah, just head to menti.com and then we've got the code there, 21225073. And feel free just to chuck in any thoughts you're having at all. <laughs> I think chuck-ins in Australian terms, Matt. <laughs> okay, so our first response here, understand how food and food choices impact the health and wellness of you, society, the environment and the economy. Understand healthy food choices and being able to implement the choices in everyday life. Choose, prepare and consume a nutritionally balanced diet. Gather, manage, store and prepare food safely and in a way that aligns with an individual's values, goals and abilities. Oh my gosh, I love these. Um, make informed food decisions and how food affects all aspects of their life. Use food efficiently in support of your health needs and culture in a manner that does minimal harm to the environment. These are so great. Keep them coming if you haven't popped yours in. <laughs> Uh, make informed decisions about what food to purchase or source to stay healthy. Um, was anyone having any issues with the mentee? Did they want to call out a response? Oh, you're all okay? Cool. Can I just ask, uh, I think Erin, you mentioned it too in your presentation about the contribution of food to the economy. Is that like what we don't sort of that hasn't come up for us much in Australia? Is that around mm -hmm. the contribution of food to 
jobs and employment and industry or is it around the commercial determinants of health and the influence of the financialization of food what, what is or is it something different i in my conception conceptualization it's a little bit of both so economically okay. um we had some conversations at the table about like capitalism and food advertising um, and how that plays a large role but then we can also look at economics in terms of um who are our farmers who's growing our food who what are the economics of city planning, for example, and accessibility. So I feel like economics can really fall into many different categories across food system, um, depending on which lens you're taking. Yeah. Because I think Australia and the, I mean, most of you seen from the US, I think Australia and the US are quite similar in that there is a a lot of our food policy is around our agricultural policy and the contribution of agriculture to the Australian economy. Great, we've got a few more responses here. So live as healthfully as possible, empower people to interact in food systems in a way that is supportive of their health and well-being, but also that of the community and the broader global picture. Be able to prepare foods, food utilization with varied ingredients and recognize main nutritional components like proteins or carbs, foods rich in fiber. That's great. I might keep moving on, but if you think of anything along the way, please pop it in because the mentee should still be open as we go through the rest of the presentation. Are you right for me to move on, Helen? Yeah, thanks, Courtney. I thought I watched you do it before and I thought I know what I was doing, but <laughs> I was wrong. <laughs> you were really close. <laughs> oh, cool. Damn, I have to go up here. Awesome. Thank you for your patience with me. <laughs> You're right. Okay, awesome. Um, so my PhD sort of came from, I did my honours in developing a nutrition knowledge questionnaire in Australia, but then um, after completing that, and Helen was actually one of my associate supervisors on that project, sort of realised that it wasn't about whether people know about food as to whether it influences what they actually eat. And so one of my other supervisors at the time was like, that's Helen's work, like that's what she's working on. And so Helen and I kind of got together and that's sort of where this project um, came from. But I guess before we even dived into going any further into looking at developing a measure of food literacy, we kind of wanted to make sure, you know, is this a definition or is the questionnaire that we're going to develop actually something that people will use because they are using the definition? And so, yeah, that's where this work came from. So we wanted to conduct a scoping review on the use of the term food literacy. So you can imagine how broad that was from the literature for papers that just use the term food literacy. Um, so the purpose was to describe the frequency of the use and reach of the term, to identify changes in the use of the term over time, and to describe how the term had been applied and defined within the literature. So as below, yeah, just the term food literacy into several different databases up to the 31st of December 2019. Um, and so it could, the term could appear anywhere in the text, so it could be in the title, the abstract, the main text, but 
preferably not in the reference list or the footnotes just because then it started to lose a bit of meaning about whether it was actually about food literacy or not. Oh, okay. Um, so after we conducted the review, we actually found 549 articles in the published literature from the beginning of time up until 31st of December 2019 using the term food literacy. So there was a lot of articles that I had to work through. Um, and so we extracted quite a bit of different information from there. So the number of times they actually used the term food literacy in the article, because we sort of found that that tended to indicate whether the article was predominantly about food literacy, so whether they were defining it or conceptualising it or measuring it versus talking about it in more of an offhand sort of way. Then we also looked at the country of affiliation of the first author. So this wasn't always the country in which the study was actually conducted, um, but it was a way to sort of classify such a big piece of research and try to get a bit of an understanding of who was working in the space at the time. We also looked at the article type. So was it original research or was it a review of existing definitions or other concepts relating to food literacy? We looked at the discipline. So obviously we're sort of more in the nutrition public health discipline, but were other people talking about it in other ways? And we looked at the year of publication too. So how has that changed over time? And so articles that had the term food literacy in the title, we sort of pulled out as a separate way to analyse those because there was a few less and we could get a bit more information from that. So we looked at what the aims of the article were. So like, was it defining the term? Was it a review? Um, and which definition of food literacy they used in those articles? So in terms of countries publishing on food literacy, we developed this map to sort of summarise that information, but Australia was still predominantly the country publishing on food literacy. And at the time there was 127 articles in Australia, uh, followed closely by Canada with 116 and the US with 112. Um, but we did find that there was representation from all continents of people publishing in food literacy so that the term food literacy was really resonating with people across a lot of different countries and contexts there. Um, so in terms of the discipline and the article type, when we looked at the article type, it was mostly original research. So that was 429, um, and that was about 78% of all articles were classified as original research, but there were a few reviews, um, perspectives and commentaries and short reports, but there wasn't a lot of difference in between what they actually were. And in terms of the discipline, um, there were 72 different disciplines that used the term food literacy. Um, as expected, it was predominantly in fields like public health and nutrition and dietetics, but did sort of tend to go across different areas. We got some sort of IT, environmental management, things like that. So people were kind of talking about the term in different contexts, but predominantly from a nutrition perspective. And then over time, I find this really interesting. So 83% of articles using the term food literacy occurred in the five years preceding the search. So between 2015 to 2019. So prior to that, it was sort of a slow growth, but really um, increased in the latter years. So in terms of the articles that were focusing on food literacy, so had that food literacy term in the title, 62% uh, exclusively used experts as their research subjects compared to 21% of articles which exclusively engaged with the general public. 
And overall, 51 different definitions of food literacy were cited across 82 articles. So just to show you the number of definitions that exist, um, it, was, it was a lot. <laughs> um, but we did find that the most frequently cited was Helen's definition, and that was, about, uh, that was cited 66 times. But other common definitions um, included um, by Cullen, and that was 12, Calassa, and that was 7, and Bellato, which was 5. Um, so... Yes, lots of different definitions that exist out there and used in a lot of different ways. So in terms of the summary, we found that there were, that inconsistencies do exist because a frequent use of the term food literacy isn't indicative of an in-depth understanding of the construct. So people use food literacy really offhand to talk about um, it's sort of a recommendation. So they conducted this research and they think a food literacy intervention would be a great way to go forward. But in terms of what that actually looks like, people never really interrogate that um, that much. And then, as I mentioned, it was used in both national and international contexts in both English and non-English speaking countries. So it really seemed to highlight um, this understanding across really broad reach um, of audiences of income statuses. And that we found that the Vision and Galagos definition was the most commonly cited and we sort of thought that was because that few people disagree with the core domains and components. So it, people sort of think that that would be the baseline for what people would know, but there may be more to it, um, but not less than that. And so we sort of ran with that going forward. Helen, did you want to kick off from here? <laughs> Oh, not so much. You can keep going. It was more um, really, I guess, to say that um, I think that my definition was timely and that's probably why the citation, you know, it's the most cited. I think it represents maybe the core um, but not the full scope of what the definition is. And I think um, what we wanted to get you to think about, and Courtney's going to talk a little bit about measurement, but as we kind of move through whether you think there's a continuum of competencies, um, whether you think there might be different components depending on the setting, um, because that, that's the sense that we get, that, it, that people didn't kind of disagree with the core part um, of my definition. It was more that what were these extra bits that were added on or a different um, way of articulating that. But I guess also the main thing that we learned from that was that it, it seems like it's a term that's growing and is kind of consolidating now. And certainly when we talk to the um, Nutrition Education Division of the FAO, they consider too that it's a, a term that's widely used now. Hmm. Happy for you to keep going from here. <laughs> yeah, uh, so we've printed out, I think. I hope, yes, we um, have. They should be on your table. <laughs> definitions. And I guess what we would like you to do is um, have a look at them and have a think about um, what you like about them, that you might not use any of these or like any of these. Um, but what we... If, Courtney, if you pop the next couple of slides up, yep. um, you know, you might think about, it might be easier for you to think about um, components and then think backwards to definitions. And that's a little bit why we were doing um, 
errands section first. So maybe it's easier to think about what you're trying to achieve and then um, backwards to what the overarching um, concept is. Um, so this this was, um, I guess, a, a, a look at some of how some different definitions come up with components or what they think food literacy might be made up of. And we saw that that other um, big diagram from Canada as well in, in Aaron's um, presentation. If you go to the next slide, Courtney, as well. Um, this is, I guess, just to saying that this is necessarily the best conceptualisation for children, but I guess more to say that um, our work has all happened in adults. There seems to be a whole nother raft of definitions and competencies and curriculums that exist for children. Um, so thinking about what that might mean, I, I, when I look at them, I feel as though that ones around adults tend to be very, come more from the health sector and they tend to be more about what are these components that need to enable this person right now and the ones for children come from education and they tend to be I think around who is this um, citizen um, of our society this global citizen and and what might they be um, so I think they I that's my initial thoughts on what the differences between those two are but if we go to the next um, slide. What what we hoped you could talk about at your tables, um, and I know that's not that many of you, so whether or not we all have a discussion all together um, or tables, Courtney, I'll let you read the room on what might be better there. But what do you think are kind of the key aspects of a definition going forward? Is it about empowerment? Is it about um, capability? Is it about competence is it activism is it people taking action at more than just an individual level is it an individual construct is it a collective construct um or, or any anything else that you think is coming out from those definitions or how you'd like to think of of the term so, so we thought we would spend um about 10 minutes having conversations about that. Um, I don't know when I was sort of um, thinking about this even just a few minutes before in the break, um, those of you that have come from different backgrounds um, and particularly those of you that have been working in related fields for a long time, you know, when do you use the term food literacy versus other terms like um, food skills or cooking? And is there something about reflecting on when you use those different terms that tells you something about what you need this definition to be um, and, and what you take it to mean? Perfect. So if you guys want to have a chat in your groups and if you want someone to scribe and then pop it up on the mentee so we can kind of see your ideas come up on the screen at the time, that would be great.
Um, so these, yeah, oh, do you want this or do you want the med tea? Yeah, cool. All right, I'll leave this up here then. <laughs> but please um, keep popping your answers into Menti because we'll come back to them at the end.
Hey Helen, we had a question about how social determinants of health fit in with your definition and wondering if you could talk to it. Um, yeah, so oh, it's probably too hard to go back. Is it too hard to go back to the slide of the model? Oh, well, it's, no. I think it's no. in a couple of slides time actually. That's right. Here? No, the, the... Oh, the big like roundabout one? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess um, I was really conscious of, um, you know, particularly governments have a, in Australia anyway, have a really strong uh, tendency to invest in food literacy interventions and ignore, I guess, other aspects. So I, I which is why I designed my thesis the way that I did um, to highlight the limitations of food literacy um, when people are experiencing disadvantage. So the concept behind this diagram that was in my thesis is that um, the the strength of the that food literacy um, influenced your food intake and whether that was your food intake from a nutrition perspective or food security perspective by making things more predictable or more certain um, gave you more choice within a limited set of choices or made following guidelines more pleasurable and that was the main reason why people invested in um, building their food literacy but that um, that's tended to be restricted by their food supply or their food environment would probably be a better term now and their early childhood experiences with food and that those things were impacted by um, the social determinants of health in particular poverty geography social exclusion and social support um, and so the the concept was that um, you would consider those um, the food literacy in the context of those things At the time, we hadn't kind of we'd got the components, but we hadn't looked at the measurement of them. But that they would, that I sort of considered it to be a fairly dynamic model in terms of you might focus on different things depending on context, and I still think that that would be right. Different components depending on the context, and different you'd address the components in different ways depending on context. Awesome. I think in terms of food security. Um, you know, I think that it fits squarely in that utilisation pillar, but the extent to which it can influence food security, I think, is um, a bit unknown, but would be limited in the same way. Cool, thank you. Yeah, I've got some, when we get further into kind of how you might put a, a definition together, I've got a little bit of a reference to that sort of those elements so did did you want to go through your experience of the developing the measure in the context of what that means for the definition perhaps yeah. Courtney yeah yeah um, how did we all go have you guys put some things up in the mentee have you had a think do we want to have a group chat about some of the things that you've thought about I can see we've got two responses so far So the first one is um, what are the key aspects of these definitions? So um, context specific, so age, accessibility, prior knowledge, and also social determinants of health can impact your food access, but not necessarily your food literacy. Um, did Maybe I, if I pass the microphone around to your group, if you want to maybe call out some ideas so we can kind of keep them 
we go through. We can even come yep. back to this at the end if people want to kind of think yeah. about it in context of models. Mm. Yeah, I can go through the yeah the questionnaire sort of stuff first about the development of the measure, and then we can maybe yeah, talk about and where then it I fits. think if we move into because yep. it seems from talking to most of you, it seems like you're interested in it in the context of the overall food system. We've got a couple of diagrams there at the end that relate to that that will kind of hopefully guide your thoughts on on this as well. Really sorry. <laughs> you thought I would have got it by now. <laughs> Almost there. Cool. Thank you. All right, so now we're going to talk through um, the evaluation and assessment of food literacy. And so I sort of wanted to focus on how we measure food literacy, maybe what we would consider to be high or low levels of food literacy. And I, know I was talking with that group over there about that too. Um, the current tools and measures and what they look like. So as a bit of a background, I thought I'd start with how we actually develop a measure um, and what we've done so far to sort of get to that point of developing a measure. So we sort of have three main areas, so item development, scale development, and then scale evaluation. And so when we talk about domain identification and domain defining, that was um, the Vision and Galagos definition and conceptual framework. Then the item generation um, came from um, Helen's work with one of her honours students, Claudia Amuzinda. So that paper is published, so you can have a look at that one out there too. Um, and I'll talk through some of it as well when we talk about the content validity study. Um, and so that was her work. And then we did a face validity study. So I conducted some cognitive interviews with general public to understand how they were um, interpreting the meaning of the questions that we had about food literacy. And then in terms of structure and dimensionality, um, we usually use exploratory factor analysis, but I'll tell you why we didn't use that as we progress through. Um, and then um, you can alternatively use PCA, which is what we did use, and then using item response theory or classical test theory, and we chose item response theory, and again, I'll talk through why we chose that. And we also looked at test tree test reliability, and the discriminant validity part is still to come, and that was when we were looking at the relationship between food literacy, diet quality, and food security. So we've got that data there. I'm kind of partway through analysing it, so we're getting there, um, but I think that will help um, with some of the conversations that we have as we go to. Okay, so study one aimed to determine the content validity of a food literacy item pool using an expert consensus study with international researchers. So round one um, was sent out to a set um, of international experts. So there was 18 food literacy coalition members in Australia, Italy, Canada and the Netherlands. And they provided feedback on 229 items that were pooled from the literature um, assessing food literacy. 
And so respondents were um, rating items on a scale of one to four. So one indicated that the item was not relevant and four indicated it was highly relevant. And from this, we had a content, we calculated the content validity index where items above 0.71 were considered to be relevant. And that was sort of our way of providing a cutoff for what items went forward in the analysis. So what we found was that of the 229 items within this round one survey, 48%, so that was um, 111, achieved a CVI score of at least 0.71. But participants identified a number of sort of key issues when they were completing the survey about the items. So it was that they couldn't really distinguish between some of the, the components, so they didn't know what the differences were between the components and the difference between some of the items in the way that they were measuring that component. And so it made it difficult for them to discern what items should and shouldn't go through to the next round of analysis. And so this provided quite a big issue for us when we were figuring out what to do next, um, but that maybe um, using that CVI cutoff and having a think about how we might be able to capture um, how people are understanding these components was an issue that we would progress with. So we still sent out the survey a second time in a round two to see whether there, um, maybe if we had sort of set the survey up in a different way or if things were done a bit differently, people would understand. Um, and this was sent out to researchers who'd cited the Vigin and Galagos definition. So people who hadn't um, actively worked so much in the food literacy space, but had referenced it before to determine items for inclusion and exclusion in a food literacy questionnaire. So. Of the 151 items that went into this one, so we used a bit of discretion with the previous round because the 111 items maybe weren't capturing what we thought they would or really getting at these kind of components of food literacy. And so in doing that, we had a few more that went into this next round. And so we used that same CVI cutoff of 0.71 and 79% of items achieved that score. So the key themes that were identified by participants included that despite the Vision and Galagos definition being widely used and cited, there was an inadequate understanding of the meaning of the individual components still, that still came through in both rounds. And interestingly, we found that items regarding food preparation and grocery shopping and structured meal times were easily sourced from the literature and were really well understood by experts. But items related to the planning, selection, and eating outside of the home were less consistently understood. And so at this point, we had a questionnaire that was really capturing a lot of those behaviours that we expect people to do. So grocery shop and, you know, cook at home and have those structured meal times. But we know that that isn't really what people are doing. Like people eat out quite a lot. And this wasn't being captured in the questionnaire that we were developing at all. And so that was our sort of big point is that the next study that we did really had to say, well, what are people actually doing and how are we actually going to capture that in developing this questionnaire? Because as I've got there, um, consumption of food outside of the home really contributes substantially to total dietary intake and diet quality. And so making sure we captured that was really important. And so that led into the face validity study. Uh, and so this built on that study one by aiming to capture um, information about the general public about how they enacted those behaviours of eating outside of the home. And so we used that food literacy pool that was developed from that study one to understand 
um, how people would respond to them by using um, a cognitive interviews. So we used verbal scripted, unscripted probing and think aloud protocols. So we used a cognitive interview study versus some sort of typical face validity methods, which is just, do you understand this question, yes or no? Because we wanted to get at those issues, but also potentially problematic items where um, there was different wording, different structures, that sort of thing that we had from the previous version that were coming through um, into this questionnaire too. So Australian residents, we approach them via Facebook groups. And so we chose Facebook groups from different socioeconomic regions around the sort of, um, I'd say, southeast Queensland area. And so we picked postcodes where we knew there was generally a lower socioeconomic economic background so we could get a more diverse range of participants. And so we analysed the data um, mostly for each individual item to see whether people were understanding them in the way that we expected that the question would be portrayed. So we had 20 participants, nine were male and 11 were female, aged between 20 to 79 years. And so 11 items were identified by participants as not being applicable to all situations. So this included items on household and living situations, double-barreled items. So when we asked people about whether they could wash or peel fruits and vegetables and people were like, well, I don't wash that, but I would peel it or vice versa. And so they were like, well, I don't know how to answer that. So that was really helpful for us as a way to say, okay, well, we need to split up an item like that because people aren't doing those two things together. So 13 items we found um, participants needed more clarification on. So when they were reading out the item, they were like, I don't really understand what this means or what you're trying to say. And it was because of the context they were in. So it could have been relating to typical food purchasing, food provisioning or food socialisation behaviours that really differed among participants. So eating together versus not eating together, sitting at a table to eat. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. That sort of thing, it really differed among participants. So we had 32 items that had lexical problems and that was because of wording that was again confusing or sort of ambiguous and that was when we had questions about judging the quality of food and people were like well you know I judge it this certain way other people said other ways and that means that it's hard to sort of measure that question if people are doing it in different ways. Um, and we also had a question that was about particular illnesses and it was in relation to foods impacting health outcomes and people were like, what particular illnesses do you mean like cancer or do you mean like cold and flus? So there was a really big sort of spectrum between something like that. So again, something we had to consider in the way that we were talking about these questions. So again, even with general public, we found that people really limited their responses to particular food preparation or purchasing scenarios like cooking at home or grocery shopping. So again, we weren't capturing those things that people actually do like pre-prepared meals or takeaway, eating at restaurants or cafes. And so to address this, we actually ended up splitting up a lot of key questions to have different contexts. So we would put this preface at the start to say when eating out, when grocery shopping, when eating at a cafe or restaurant or things like that. So people would take that into consideration as they answered the item. But again, the problem with that was that suddenly we had tons of items from all the items that we'd split up to reflect those different occasions for the things that people were doing. But we needed it to be able to capture the behaviours that people were actually doing. Um, and so I sort of mentioned a lot of that, but yes, so we found those items, people were only talking about grocery shopping and eating at home. We split them up to have 
um, items that reflected these different occasions. But now we had 171 items and it was getting pretty long for people to respond to. Um, so we had to figure out how we would both evaluate the psychometrics of that, but also reduce the number of items. And so study three, which was kind of the second last study of my PhD, but the last one that I'll be talking about here, was to look at the dimensionality item analysis and, item analysis and stability um, of this 171 item pool that we'd got from the cognitive interviews that we did. Um, and so I mentioned before that there was a reason why we chose certain methods that we did. And so when, um, when we were looking at um, the statistical analysis that we would do on the questionnaire, um, ex using exploratory factor analysis first followed by confirmatory factor analysis is usually sort of typical methods that people follow. But we actually ran an exploratory factor analysis and found that the items grouped really weirdly. So we expected them to come out as per Helen's model, so that they would sit under 11 components and it would be really clear and it would be easy and we'd you know, see all these things that would sit together perfectly as we envisioned them. And that was absolutely not the case at all. So what we ended up with was this really jumble of items that sat across these weird new components that was being developed. And so we looked at it and just like, what do you even do with this? And so we started having a look at other options um, for things that we could do to analyze the questionnaire, see if there was something else that might come up from that. And so we looked at doing a principal component analysis instead. And so we chose that because the components of food literacy are inter, like correlated. And so we thought, well, they should be sitting together, but in a way that they still make sense. And so we chose to do the PCA, but we also needed to reduce the number of items too, because it was getting pretty long at 171 and we really needed to bring that back down. And so um, usually you do EFA and then CFA. So EFA to get your structure of the items, then CFA to confirm that that structure is correct. And so we needed another method after that to say, well, now we've got this structure, let's confirm this structure. And so we chose to do um, item response theory um, in particular rash measurement um, over classical test theory methods for a few reasons. And so the first one is because when you score items using classical test theory, each response category is considered equal. And so when it scores people on the total for the questionnaire, it assumes that um, people can be, they're continuous on that sort of spectrum. I'm trying to explain it because it is a difficult concept to understand. Um, but that a total score is actually representative of people's understanding of that construct. So, you know, you've got this higher level of knowledge because you scored higher, which means that you're more food literate. But it doesn't take into account that someone could be higher on this concept but lower on this concept. And that's what item response theory and rash measurement does is that it takes into consideration, okay, well, you can do this sort of thing, but maybe you can't do this as well. But it won't give you this score that's really skewed because you answered number five or you strongly agree with all these things um, and it doesn't really identify what you need to know or what we need to develop an intervention about, for example. So that's why we sort of chose the method that we did for that. And so I'll talk through a little bit of the process of that now. And so the first study um, within this phase, this sort of study three, was that we took that 171 item pool and sent it out to um, 500 adults over 18 years of age residing in Australia. And so we used a market research panel, Qualtrics, who got us a diverse range of 
adults, so an equal split for male, female, and a range of ages um, and socioeconomic status there. And so as I mentioned, we chose to do principal component analysis and item response theory to determine the targeting responsiveness, validity, and reliability of the questionnaire. And so targeting is the extent to which the distribution in the sample matches the range. Responsiveness is the ability of the instrument to detect change accurately when it has occurred. Responsiveness is that... Um, Sorry, I just explained that one. Um, validity is the extent to which a scale is free of systematic error and reliability is the extent to which the scale scores are free from random error. And so we had 504 participants who responded to that aged between 18 and 85 years. We had a range um, of education, jobs, incomes and CFA levels. And we were actually able to reduce the 171 item pool down to 100. So still a bit, but definitely less than where we were at. But what we actually found when we ran the analysis was that um, the, the analysis was splitting up some of these components. So 1.1 there, prioritise money and time for food. It was splitting it into two sort of sections, one more about prioritising money and the other one more about prioritising time for food. So it kind of got us thinking a little bit that maybe some of the components are actually quite multi-dimensional and that's why you can't have items that sit under just one of the components because it's measuring a few different things all at once. But the length of that component isn't indicative of whether it will be split up or not. So C3.1, it didn't split up at all, but it's because it's generally about people's ability to um, cook, I would say. And so that sort of sits as something that people understood and that items really sat in together quite nicely. Whereas others, again, understand food has an impact on personal well-being, split into a few because it was dependent on different aspects of the questions that fit within there. So that also makes it difficult then because suddenly you've gone from something that was 11 components to now 19 statistical components that measure this concept. So it um, makes it really hard for people to actually use the measure um, as it is. And so um, all of the um, stats that we ran were within the appropriate ranges um, for what we were doing and so that was good at least that the items that generally while it was split into 19 statistical components all the items kind of grouped together quite nicely unlike when we did the EFA and all the stats um, all came out well for that. So then we did a secondary analysis so after we re-scored some of the items um, because we found that people weren't able to differentiate between a neutral and I think it was disagree, like those things sort of sat as one. So if someone wrote neutral, they actually meant to say that they disagreed with it because that was more about how they enacted that behaviour. So we had to rescore the questionnaire and so we sent it out again um, to check the validity of that. We had 503 participants that time between 18 and 85 years. And this was also when we um, obtained some information about their food security status and also their diet quality, so that's still to be analysed. Um, but all the validity and reliability came out well for that too. We also did test-retest reliability. So after that phase, we sent it out another time and checked the test-retest reliability using Cronbach's Alpha. And again, that all came out as expected. Most had between good to moderate reliability. 
And so in summary, <laughs> raw scores, um, which is what you do when you use classical test theory, tend to inflate the extent of change reported by participants, whereas something like item response theory more gets at how people respond to each individual item so we understand what people are performing well or not well at and we know what to do moving forward, which is why we chose this rash method, uh, method of scoring. Um, the paper is published, and but it's not as simple to, to measure something using the rash measurement. So you've got to use this raw score to measure table versus when you do classical test theory and you can just sum up um, people's responses to something there. So it makes it a little bit more difficult to measure, um, but make sure that the questionnaire that we developed really comprehensively captured Helen's model. So while um, so all of the 11 components were comprehensively measured by this questionnaire in 19 statistical components. So the questionnaire does exist, but again, it depends on um, whether we think that that's the, the definition that we should be using too. So I was going to ask this question about whether we think food literacy should be measured on a continuum or categorised because um, a lot of the literature really tends to vary. So people, if they do categorise, um, they'll do it as low, medium to high and cut it off at um, usually thirds. And But I don't think that that really represents people's knowledge or skills and exactly what we've talked about from this um, classical test theory perspective that summing up responses really doesn't capture that method. So perhaps maybe a continuum is better. Um, but I think maybe we're going to go back to some of the points about... Um, what a definition would look like. So I wonder if we go back to that now and if you have any thoughts about how we measure it, maybe you pop them in there too. Cool. Um, Helen, did you have anything you wanted to jump in on there? I guess um, I'm thinking maybe if we just have a general discussion now as we raise different points, because I think we've got people in the room who've got um, some fairly in-depth understanding of, of um, you know, they've had you know, a few people who this has been the whole topic of their PhD. So in terms of thinking deeply about what its purpose is and, and um, what a continuum might be, um, did people in the room just want to even talk about um, what they have, well, especially those that have been involved in the development of measures, whether you think people are, like how, how did you think the cutoff points were for people when you were trying to measure them or if you've got any comments at all at what um, Courtney's talked through about her experiences of the difficulties of developing a measure? Feel free to grab the microphone if you wanted to jump in. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with what they use for the cutoffs for the, the nutrition literacy tool, um, and I wasn't involved in that research, but ultimately what they use to develop, so for nutrition literacy, they have three uh, for this specific tool, like possibility, I'm going to mess them up, but um, likelihood of good nutrition literacy, 
possibility of poor nutrition literacy or probability of poor nutrition literacy. And so it's in three categories, but it's not in thirds. Mm. It was actually based on cutoffs based on HEI or healthy eating index scores and diet quality. So they used just methods to look at like how they were related. And so it's not like a third of the population is mm. in the bottom, a third's in the middle, a third's in the beginning. It was, you know, based on diet quality scores and how that aligned with nutrition literacy to try to put it into categories, but it's not perfect either. You know, so I don't know that there's an answer in terms of continuum versus categorical and how we score it. Mm. Um, we haven't gotten there on mine. We didn't have enough diet quality data or anything to feel like we could make mm. a decision. Yeah, I was gonna ask that because um, I guess a lot of them I've found, and it was interesting when you're talking about international versus domestic mm -hmm. students and that whether or not you thought the tool was very good at differentiating people, all the tools have been involved in everybody scores high and there is statistically significant difference in what people are scoring from different groups mm -hmm. um, to check validity, but the difference is pretty small. Yeah, absolutely. And we did like we just looked at it on a continuous score and compared that to demographics and food security and things and then we also did just divide it in half just high and low knowing that was just for our own analysis not that that's how we're ultimately going to mm -hmm. score the tool but just looking at here's the median those who scored above it and below it are there any differences that we can find in factors related to those individuals but um, we really didn't see a ton doing that that would make you say oh yes it's mm. it's high in low food literacy that's it i think you're it's definitely a bigger spectrum of that yeah yeah um so courtney maybe if we can just present these last couple of little models and then maybe if we can have a general discussion on on what attributes people think or what aspects people think might need to be in a definition so I guess I just wanted to throw a couple of ideas around. Um, so this this model here was, as I said, was talking about, it was the one that came out of my thesis, but the funding for my thesis came partly from a project when I was with the Department of Health that was identifying best buys for the department. So it was really intended to inform investment in interventions. So that, that can be one reason why you want a definition and you want to identify what the components are. Um, the next model. So this one, you're probably pretty familiar with this diagram. So this diagram is you know, from the high level panel of experts um, used to describe the food system and also then used to inform monitoring of the food system and that food and nutrition dashboard and what might be monitored globally. Um, when you look there, you'd probably put um, food literacy in though that consumer behaviours box. Um, but when you look at the indicators that the food and nutrition dashboard use. They have indicators for every other part of this food system, but they started off having none for those consumer behaviours. And now they have um, one indicator, which is the number of meals cooked per day. 
and the number of meals cooked per week. That's the only indicator they have for, for that little section there. So um, for me, part of my interest in researching in this area and getting a consensus definition is I feel like this is a part of the food system that a lot of us spend a lot of our time working in in terms of interventions, but it isn't one that's really represented in food and nutrition monitoring and surveillance. And I know in Australia we've got our next national, we don't have um, the rigorous national nutrition surveys on a regular basis like you do in the States, but um, we do have one coming up this year and none of these sorts of things around planning and management, preparation, selection were included because we didn't have an agreement on what we were after in monitoring and surveillance here where we do on some other aspects of the food system you think of the informus framework, some of those different parts that are looking at different parts of the food system in a lot of detail, but none here. And not because I particularly think it's the be all and end all, but it's hard to know its relative contribution to food choice and food insecurity when you don't have an understanding of what the indicators might be. Um, you, don't, you can't name them and, and you don't have a measure for them. Um, so next couple of things, a couple of models, um, was just that this is um, an integrated model of health literacy. And I'm showing it more because um, just to go, I guess, to start the conversation of um, here, you can see there's a continuum um, of, of individual to population and that it goes um, from healthcare disease prevention and health promotion and then obviously that continuum of access, understand, um, appraise and apply. Um, and also to think about whether or not there's an advantage or not in attaching food literacy to health literacy um, or not. I know that in some countries there's um, a description of food literacy as a type of health literacy or whether or not you see food literacy as a type of other literacies or whether you think it's separate on its own and whether there's advantages or not to using the language of those other literacies. Um, so two, two points from that model. And then just a final couple of diagrams. Um, so this, was, this is again that concept of a continuum. And if we did have a continuum for food literacy, would it be a continuum of individual, household, community and national, or would it be a continuum of um, this individual, how it affects your health to how it affects the health of your community and the health of your planet? So what would the continuum be? Um, next slide, thanks, Courtney. Uh, this is from Australian government has um, a food literacy framework, a, a health, a physical literacy framework. It has components um, and then it has this um, stages of development, which it's sort of describing a novice through to somebody who's um, more competent. So it has a, a continuum of competence. And then finally, um, this is a health literacy framework um, from the World Health Organization. 
that describes the health literacy of an individual versus the health literacy of a community and then the responsiveness and the capability of an organisation um, on a continuum in terms of its capacity to develop health literacy. So I know I've just thrown a whole lot at you then, um, but given that it's a fairly small group, but a group that's really, um, I think, uh, got a lot of wisdom in terms of how you've applied this in your work, I guess just your thoughts um, or response to any of those things that we've presented in terms of how you see um, what you would really like to see in an international definition with that what you see it looking like what you see its use what would you really not want to see what would you really like to see um, so no Courtney you can stop the slides if you like and we can just have a general conversation in the room Feel free to jump up to the microphone or just yell out. <laughs> Courtney, I don't know if you can change it or if it's worth it, but I can't see the room. I can just see that blue slide. Okay. But I don't want to. Whatever. If it's a big pain, don't worry about it. Um, I don't want to dominate, but I know I just wanted to say one thing we talked about at our table earlier that you just mentioned um, was that. You know, the uh, U.S., ha and I don't even know who the definition is now, but the CDC, I believe, has the definitions of health literacy that break it down into individual and organizational, just kind of like how you shared individual and community. And so we were actually talking about that earlier at our table. Um, and I've thought that for a while, that potentially there needs to, and I don't even know that just two levels is enough, um, but what an individual is responsible for and capable of um, is likely different than what an organization, whether that is a health department or a state or the federal government of any country or whatever is responsible for in terms of, of what is food literacy. And so I think that, I, I think that it, we probably, from an international perspective, can't just have one definition. I think we need multiple segments, um, whether that's individual, you know, community, organizational, et cetera, because we all have different responsibilities. And I think that we, a lot of us were, and I used to work in extension previously, so I'm in that game too, but work with limited resource. And it does seem a little bit unrealistic and maybe morally unfair to put on some of like the environmental restrictions and responsibility on an individual who's struggling with low income. Like, oh, you're not food literate if you don't consider the impact of your food on the environment. Um, if that's our threshold and someone doesn't have the resources to you know, be food literate, if that's how we're defining food literacy, um, that I, I don't think that's fair or acceptable either. So I think mo basically long story to say, I, I, I agree with how health literacy has gone um, and that we probably need to define it you know, differently depending on who we're targeting at that time. And so how would you see them? Like you talked a bit about one being kind of like things more like environmental literacy being more something that is a responsibility of 
is at a national kind of level. But then I guess reflections on kind of measuring it at individual level. Yeah, I, I um, don't know. And yeah, because I guess my, my two reflections on it have been when we looked at all of those different definitions, the, the thing they all agreed on was mine, which is pretty basic, which is very functional and very, um, it's not entirely functional, but it's very much about how am I going about feeding myself today in this situation, in varying contexts that I might come across on a day-to-day basis and not so much what I might need if I'm thinking about being a more responsible citizen or definitely not a lot around the food system, probably limited to the extent of understanding my the food, system, the food environment that I'm in. Um, and when, like, the Italy, the Italy and the, the Dutch measure, for example, those questions ended up getting knocked out in various um, validation rounds and the same thing happened with ours when we had items about food systems um, in the original Delphi round um, with food experts there wasn't consensus that that was part of food literacy or it wasn't so would you see that those sort of things sit in this community or national food literacy or do they still sit with the individual yeah, that's a really good question, and I I thought that too. When you know, there's a new framework and definition and tool that measures it based on sustainability, and some of those tools um, don't really cover some of the basic individual skills. <laughs> you know, some of them are, are food literacy, but I actually feel like they've they've kind of cut out the meat of food literacy and just focused on the fringe. Um, I think your definition is more of that: what an individual needs to know. Um, and I think that the other things are important, but I think those, you know, it isn't necessary for someone to have those broader thinking skills on it to feed themselves in a, a healthy way. I think they're very, very important concepts, but likely, you know, at a more community level. It's, it's the responsibility of the community or you know, the government organizations, depending on who you look for, to provide those opportunities. So I, I, I that's why I used your definition in, in terms of just really what are those basic knowledge and skills needed. Um, I mean, there, you know, there's other literacies now. There's like media literacy and health promotion literacy and all of these other things. But I think really when we're focusing on, on individual food liter- literacy, it is what is I need today? And then maybe you know, some of the more community and other things can be, what do I need in the future? And that doesn't mean it's not important to teach about sustainability and, and all of that. I obviously think that's very important. Um, but I think those are more, you know, higher level uh, skills for an, that someone should know, but it's not an individual's responsibility. And if, and if they don't have the means to eat in that way, that they're, you know, problematic. What what are other people's thoughts? Um, carrying on with that, um, those thoughts, um, the question of should there be different literacies for different groups, you know, and I, I think I agree with you to a certain extent because I think the definition changes depending on how you want to use it. And I'm thinking of um, uh, one example, and it's 
um, one of these definitions here, I think it's Thomas or Thompson, um, and they said in their article when they were doing a definition of food literacy and, and, and uh, including all the attributes, it was a 2019 article, and they said we took out sociocultural as an attribute because that's something we can't control in public health. So their perspective was we're using food literacy for public health reasons, and I think in that case, they were very interested in, in using food literacy to help um, underprivileged clients, so it was about food security, which is great. I'm just saying, um, I'm gonna take another perspective of, um, of another researcher, Dr. Joyce Slater, and she would say yes. that um, you know, food literacy is a right of all people, and when we think of children, we teach them language literacy, and we start them off when they're really little, and you know, we teach them we teach them everything, but they're not all going to go on to be Pulitzer Prize-winning novelists or change the world with their with you know with their words. But it will empower them to to decide how what they're going to do and how they're going to move forward in their life with that. Same with food literacy. We could teach people this, but it doesn't mean they all have to you know take up arms and and um, go against Coca-Cola, which is not a bad idea. But my. Ex <laughs> And, and my example of, of, sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit, but my example of, um, it's, it's true, it's not, a, you know, it's not the population's, um, everyone's responsibility to have to figure out all what, what's going on with the food system, but I always think of the example of um, the peasant um, movement, La, La Via Campesina. La Via Campesina. Right, yeah. so huge organization made up of very low-income probably uneducated peasants across the world and they are they are enacting critical food literacy and they are making they're they're having huge impacts in in trying to advocate for food security and peasants rights and all the kinds of stuff that's going wrong with the whole food system so just to say it they didn't have to do that but i'm just saying that is that is the point of literacy when we think of literacy it has those three levels um, functional interactive critical levels and that's that's literacy for everything language and everything and so if you know i know there's been some comments or some discussion in the literature that we are losing sight of the of literacy the framework of literacy when we talk about food literacy like there's there's lots of knowledge stuff going on um or understanding you know the milk comes from cows but the whole concept of literacy might might not be as well understood or enacted and uh, with functional interactive and critical levels literacy the at the critical level of any literacy, it is meant for social change. So it's not saying everybody has to go out there and enact critical literacy, but just to say that is why it's called literacy. And I didn't say that very well, but I'll just leave it at that right now. <laughs> so would you say that, you know, you talked a bit, you started off talking about um, literacy for different purposes. So would you say that you'd have a continuum that's more about what you might use for different purposes so that if you're running a public health program that might be about food security you might have this functional one that's kind of the components that I had in mind and then but then if you're using it for a school curriculum you might extend into these critical areas mm. is that how you'd structure the continuum that you'd you'd have it for different purposes or or would you say that everybody's everything and, and and in what context would you be using that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I don't know, but I guess uh, I felt like um, having. I don't think it's ideal. I think I kind of think there should be one general food literacy, you know, universal to be used. But it just seems that there's different groups looking at it in different ways because they're using it for different things. So therefore, they are 
they are maybe, um, the, the, therefore I think that's why we're seeing people not always agreeing on what the definition is or what attributes should be included because they're like, oh, we don't need this because I'm using it for something else. So it, I, you, yeah, it's, is that apples or oranges? Whether you decide that it's for everybody and you make one and everybody just works with it or, or you just, or, or you make, everyone makes up their own. And sorry, maybe this is, isn't quite the same, but I'll just mention um, something from the study I just finished. Um, when I was looking at dietetic educators in Canada, because now we're adding food literacy to our dietetic educational standards and it's new. And um, when I was, um, uh, with my interviews, what I was finding was that, um, oh, I just lost my train of thought. What was I talking about before there? <laughs> um, uh, different people using it for different things. Oh, right. Sorry. Thank you. So one of the, the um, outcomes I, f I was postulating was that um, it, th there, are, there are lots of different food literacy um, definitions out there, as we've discussed. And I thought maybe I'd, I'd be able to figure out something uh, that would help our situation in Canada with um, how we're going to teach this to students. But what I sort of came out, out to is we don't need a, in our case, we don't need a, a particular confirmed definition right now. What we need to do is decide what does food literacy look like in the context of dietetic practice so that we can determine what to teach in dietetic education. So sorry, that's a bit of an example of um, me maybe saying that um, we need to know what, what does it mean for us because we're going to use it in a particular way. So I may have just contradicted myself by saying we, we do need a particular de definition for us. But I, 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 I think not so much the definition, but just we need to figure out what does this look, for, uh, look, look like for us in practice because we don't know that yet. Like we've thrown this into our educational standards, but we don't know how and how, if uh, uh, dietitians out in the field, how are they using food literacy? What does that look like? Because we do work within a predominantly biomedical system. So... Um, it, I think that will help us to determine, okay, well, this is what it looks like in practice, this is what we'd like it to look like in practice, then we can go back and figure out how to teach it or what to teach, what parts to teach, or how to teach it in what context. Okay. Some other people with their hands up. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so... I think I'm kind of torn, actually, between the concept of an international um, consensus on this definition or this kind of context-specific. I think if we could have an international definition, I see many purposes of that being very useful across populations. But my concern is, is that there are, you know, lots of cultural and social nuances around food um, that are so specific to some populations that it's really difficult sometimes to even try to notice what they are. Um, and that perhaps in some of our Western countries, where majority of this research is coming from around food literacy, we have been articulating it in a certain way. But then when you try to articulate that for a country where um, these sorts of concepts around food and health are quite different to how we perceive them to be, that we would want to make sure <laughs> that we are careful around that definition. Um, I'm not sure if I'm making much sense, but because if that definition is used to inform a measurement, um, then we need to make sure that that measurement is able to 
you know, capture those social and cultural nuances as well. So that I think, Michelle, yeah. So similar, I think you shared a concern earlier um, around somebody potentially being shown to be food illiterate or someone is food literate and whatever that continuum could look like between the two, um, that in a certain context, using that measurement, it may show that they're not when potentially they are, but we haven't known what to measure for in that context. Not to say it can't be done, <laughs> I just think we have to be quite mindful um, around how we do that, because it, it could be really fantastic, I think, and yeah. Hopefully that all made sense. Yeah. Other thoughts? I really like that physical activity literacy thing though that was just set by the way because one thing we've always talked about in food literacy is there's lots of different levels, right? Like I don't need to be a chef in order to feed myself all and me making an acceptable meal that tastes good is going to be different than what you think an acceptable meal that tastes good is. And so yeah. I liked, I liked, and the same thing with activity, right? I mean, I love that you do CrossFit and Aaron, you know, but you, we all know that like someone doesn't, someone can be physically active by walking and by doing, you know, more simple things and that it's, it's kind of a spectrum. And I think, you know, the stages of food literacy could be done somewhat similar to that, like stage how I didn't get to read everything in the physical activity one because I couldn't see it that closely but you know how it's like there are different stages of, of food literacy and maybe at the top is you know someone who is working in the food industry whether that's with you know farmers or with chefs or, or is any of those professions but the average person maybe doesn't need to be in that level to feed themselves in a healthy sustainable way you know, and so I kind of liked how they had that categorization of it. And that was the first time I've seen that. So I will have to go look at that uh, literacy framework again. Yeah. So would you see then that if you had these particular domains or components or whatever they were, because um, there's kind of two elements to that food, that's physical literacy one, it's the fact that there's these domains and components and then there's stages within the components so you might say that if i'm running a food security program i might want to be at these stages in these domains but these stages in these domains or, or do you think that's kind of getting a bit too carried away and no one's actually ever going to really use it that it, specifically anyway. Yeah, I don't know how practical it is, like, long-term using, but, you know, it's kind of like we do in general, right? Like, someone could take a basic nutrition class and maybe be at a basic level of, of literacy with anything and knowledge. But, that, but we all know, whatever our field is, the higher you get in education, the more you realize, like, oh, this is way more complex <laughs> than I thought. Um, so yeah. I don't know how practical it is in like an everyday situation, but I think it's interesting still to look at, you know, what are, the, what really are the basic skills someone needs? And that goes back to the first slide that we had in terms of why are you using food literacy, right? Like, what are the basic things someone needs to be able to, and most people said prevent chronic disease or whatever. Um, so yeah, I don't know how we would use it, but I think it's an interesting threshold still with food literacy because I don't need to be a top chef to, you know, be food literate, but they, but a top chef obviously is going to have 
higher food literacy if we're looking at that objectively, right, than, than someone who's not generally. So I don't know, interesting thoughts. So our group talked a lot about how important culture was to the definition. And we, you know, I keep going back to this kind of divide between is do we have context specific definitions or having this universal definition? And um, I feel that um, one thing that, I don't know, I, I lean more towards on the universal side of the argument or debate. Um, and I just think that universally that being able to um, eat, have access to and prepare foods according to your culture should be prioritized and that um, that that they're prioritized over the needs of industry and government and so I think that's something no matter like what population you're working with whether it's in your own country or abroad like that industries needs or government's needs in terms of food and land are, are typically prioritized and that of the individual is not and that that if we were going to have a universal definition that centered the needs of culture and respecting one's culture and capacity to be free of disease that it would be like making sure some something about like getting rid of industry and government influences. I feel like that's come up in the other group. I wish I was a part of that capitalism discussion earlier, but um, yeah, that's my two cents. So do you think that the, like, you know, that definition of food that I put up and I think, um, let me just, I'm gonna go back to it in my notes. Um, Yeah, it refers to sovereignty. Do you think sovereignty explains that enough or do you think that it's explicitly about um, the interference of industry? Well, personally, I think that the word sovereignty means different things to different people and I'm hesitant to create a definition that's not going to be universally understood. So I would put it in more plain terms if it were up to me. Yeah, okay. Any other views? One thing I, I think that we haven't really talked about is your definition almost has two parts to it. And you could almost look at the first sentence as like the community level responsibility, like the scaffolding, you know, like who's responsible to provide that scaffolding. And so that's almost the community and then whatever community means, that could mean lots of different things. And then, you know, that the second part of your definition is really more of the individual, what you want the individual themselves to possess. So I've thought, I mean, that could kind of cover both of the things we've talked like about. Like a macro yeah. and micro yeah. application. Yeah. Since we are at the SNEB conference, I think we're a bit biased in the terms of our focus on health. 
and um, just putting my food waste researcher hat back on and you know the whole environmental side of the way that humans use food is really important and I think that that also needs to be integrate really well integrated into the definition and just in terms of food waste like I mentioned before like if if people don't understand that environmental side it tends to um, be people who do produce more food waste and so like that efficient use and the lack of waste is a in my view is a great measure of your food literacy except for when you for people who are only using processed food because processed food tends to have less waste or if you're overeating because you don't want to waste food. So, I mean, it's not as simply and clear cut as, you know, food waste is like a proxy measure of food literacy, but I think um, I think there's a lot of overlap there that um, should be considered. And so if you're, I guess for your work, how do you kind of describe people's food waste when they're not involved in the preparation of food? How do you, how do you measure that? Well, you can measure it by what they throw away, but I mean, people let foods expire or they don't understand that they can eat foods past the best buy date. Like they buy, in America at least, one of the main drivers of food waste is people have intentions to cook and then don't cook. And so processed food can kind of override that. Um, But again, that's not, when people are eating only processed food, processed food cannot, cannot um, represent my culture and your culture and everybody else's culture when it's the same product. So I still, I think that that culture piece is missing for people who are consistently eating like ultra processed foods. Helen, I was gonna add that there seems to be a lot of parallels between human health and also planetary health, Mm -hmm. right? So the same concepts that make us humans happy and healthy can also support planetary, quote unquote, happiness and Mm -hmm. health. Um, And, you know, just like along those lines, like ultra processed foods, that, that food chain, the supply chain is much longer, there's packaging, so that it might not be specifically food waste, but it's wasteful, mm-hmm. right? And then likewise, there's a lot more that goes into creating that food um, chemically that might not be so good for our body. So again, finding those parallels, I think if we find or come to a consensus on a definition that is broad enough, it could be applied to both humans and planet because a lot of the benefits and risks, I guess, are similar um, in that regard. You've hit the nail right on the head. As you say, human health is parallel to planetary health, but actually planetary health does consider human health. Let me just read this definition. Um, Planetary health refers to the health of human civilization and the state of the natural systems on which it depends. So it is completely related. So you should get to be an author of that. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could have claimed that. Um, Well, I'm just mindful of the time. so, because we've only got 20 minutes, haven't we? I've got that right, haven't I? Yeah. Reading the time over here. Is that right, Courtney? Yeah. yeah we, right. we did have a buffer of 20 minutes for the closing. So, you know, if there yeah, are Yeah, any- so 
I guess um, I just wanted to wrap it up a little um, and it, let you know that what, uh, what we plan to do from here is with this workshop, it was always um, looked at as a couple of events that we would be having. So with this workshop, uh, and particularly after speaking with Yenery, we saw that we wanted to get some general um, guidance on what purpose a definition would serve and what were the main attributes that it would need. And then from there, I guess we've got a bit of a framework upon which to build what it might actually then include. Um, we would like to continue to involve you in that. So please make sure that you have, um, we've got your, who we've got the original attendance um, list and I've sort of um, filled in the blanks of um, popping in um, where you're working and where you're from on, on the attendance list, but please um, make sure Courtney's got those details. Um, and if you'd like to continue to be contacted by us and certainly if, um, you have thoughts after this workshop about how you would, um, you know, some attributes of a definition or um, what it might include or any aspect of it at all, um, that please feel free to communicate um, that to Courtney or, or I subsequent to the workshop or if you would be, if you would like to be involved um, in more in in have a higher involvement in this work um please let us know as well because i think um you know the more people that are involved in it the more that it's an, an, a true consensus definition um but we wanted i guess to wrap up and thank you very much for your participation um we've got one last little survey if you've got the capacity to um fill it in with Mentimeter or whatever, just more to give us your feedback on um, whether we've met your expectations of what you thought this workshop was going to be about and if you've got any other feedback for us as well. But um, thank you very much. I've found it really, really stimulating. Um, I don't know, Courtney and Erin, if you if you had anything that you wanted to add as well. No, I, I think that's it. Um... I think in general, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to reach out. If there are specific resources that somehow you didn't get or can't find, um, jot it down on that sign-in sheet so that we have your email and what resources you're looking specifically for. Um, before we put our evaluation up, I think we also have a post-presentation script. <laughs> um, all right, before we wrap up, there are a few important things from the SNEB committee. Uh, your feedback is essential, so please take a moment to provide your feedback through, I believe, your app or the evaluation. Um, be sure to join SNEB this evening for the opening session and reception beginning at 5. And once again, they would like to emphasize the power of social media. As empowered food citizens, we encourage you to utilize social media platforms with the conference hashtag SNEB2023 to collectively extend the reach of this conference and foster a sense of community among nutrition education professionals worldwide. And we just have our final evaluation. Yes. Yep. This is live. Okay. Oh, it, yep. It's up. Perfect. And that's it.
sock. Maybe just put the tab I on. Put this up. Yeah. Instead. Oh, oh perfect. Okay. Yeah. That's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you There's can use your app to do the evaluation instead yeah. of empty. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you all. Thanks. Okay. <laughs>